This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Tuesday to you. You're back at it. Locked and loaded. Another week. Hey, but it's a short week because you had Monday off, maybe? Is that possible? Well, some did. Welcome to the program. Man, oh man, have we got a show for you. We got so much to get through. Uh, again, Donald Trump still t- still tweeting, but it's impacting his numbers. We'll get into that fun discussion. Um, the big day Friday, January 20th, it will be the inauguration. A lot of people say they're not going. Soft yet sensual, as we learned last week. Yeah, that's his, his goal. I'm not sure how you do that, but that's what they are. That's what the organizers are trying to well, characterize. How it strange! As. Like, oh, how'd you like the inauguration? You know what? It was soft, mm. yet sensual. Yeah, I don't know what that means. He will break with some traditions, start apparently new ones. Trump traditions. Apparently, he's going to be sworn in on the the Bible he had as a child. And uh, apparently, it's it's uh, in great condition. <laughs> Along with the the Bible that Lincoln used at his inauguration. Oh, he's going to have two Bibles. Apparently. Maybe they'll be double stacked. Double Bibles. Yeah. You know, double stuffed cookies, you can't, but double stacked Bibles. You can't Bibles. have enough Bibles. Right. I mean, there you go. I mean, that's Pen, the, Pence Abraham will use Lincoln's. one that Reagan used, I believe. Oh, wow. Because, you know, cool. why not? Yeah, I mean, did, like what Bible would you use? The saintly Ronald Reagan. You could use the Bible that they gave you as a kid. Yeah. Maybe the Bible that you took on your mission. Or just Abraham Lincoln's Bible. Right. It's a big decision. Big decision. Uh, some representatives are not going. They're 42, I believe, is the list not right going. now. Yeah. A lot of people that are performing are getting a lot of backlash, too. Yes. Like, how dare you perform? I mean... I'd give you the names, but you don't know them, so yeah, don't worry about it. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's there's some... I mean, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir get, getting some pushback. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're not supposed to celebrate an office. Yeah, I, I've been kind of going back and forth. At what point are you endorsing and at what point are you participating in democracy? Yeah. At what point are you just, if you've been asked by the pre- vice or the president-elect to do something, you just would do it. I mean, they're not, they're not going to, you know, harm people. They're just going to sing the national anthem or whatever. Yeah. I think they're going to sing this song, actually. Yeah. Trump is a simple gift. And he wanted them to change the words? <laughs> He's a simple gift. I don't know. I just think we... No wonder we don't ever heal because no one allows you to, to heal. Because if you're going to go hang out with the, with the president and, and, and sing at his inauguration, you're bad. Unless it's their president that they like. Then, then you're great. good. Yeah. Yeah, no one, no one sees it from the other side. Well, and and they don't want to because they feel like you do that, and then you're normalizing behavior that you don't like. Right, right. But again, there's something bigger than any party, than any position. The parties don't grasp this. I feel. I know. Which is why it's a winner take all. Everyone else is evil. Yeah. And you can't get anywhere that way. I mean, you don't have to, again, love the person. You, it's the president. I mean, if 
If a president you didn't like called you to the White House, would you not go? Yeah. It's president. You go. There's a, a great scene on the on the West Wing. There was a group of people sitting in a, a room and the president walked in and everyone stood up except one person. And that person was like, I'm not standing for this president. And then someone chewed her out because we stand not for that man. Right. We stand for the concept of what that office means yes. to our country. Yes. Now, that's great. And it's like, you know, a liberal, you know, poetry for the moment. Mm-hmm. But would they do that for Trump when he walked in the room? No. They would sit there and they said, I'm protesting. It's my right. Well, okay. Right. That's right. And you and so you have to beat them in the ideas. You have to beat them in the in being a better challenger. You have to beat them in the right ways, but still celebrate the office. But is it right for whatever that member of Congress to sit in the State of the Union and yell at Trump? Or yell at uh, President no. Obama as he spoke. Or no. members of the, no, that was the Supreme Court do the same thing. And you're just like, no. no. There's a certain decorum. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, there's a place for fighting and a place for, you know, filling right. your role as as a member of Congress and oh. not yelling at people. You got to know when to hold them. There you go. And when to fold them. Kenny Good Rogers point. had it from the beginning. Well, and, and you got to know when to walk away, right? And, and know when to run. Right. And you never count your... Your winnings. Before they hatch? No, when you're sitting at the table. Wow. There'll be time enough. Yes. For counting. Didn't he also have chicken joints? Pardon? What? Kenny Rogers. Chicken? Like bad knees? Bad knees? Oh, I thought he was calling like chicken legs when (laughs) you have really skinny legs. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I think he had Kenny Rogers chicken house. Okay. It was nice. So we'll get to all that fun. Uh, Plus, we'll be talking about. Is the old boys uh, club gone? You know, all these corporate America powerhouse sponsors. Donald Trump didn't have one Fortune 100 leader sponsor his election. But a lot of them are donating to the inauguration. And billion, they're like many they're, billionaires in his cabinet. They're coming in, you know, after the fact, trying, hey, we're going to be your friend now. Because you got to get influence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now we now now they want to influence. So we'll get to all that fun. Talk about uh, is our bu- businesses losing their power when it comes to a presidency? Um, all that fun straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President-elect Donald Trump says he's almost done with a plan to insure insurance for everybody that will replace Barack Obama's health care plan. Uh commonly known as Obamacare, offering no specifics. Trump said that his plan would be involve lower numbers, much lower deductibles in an interview with the Washington Post on Sunday. It's very much formulated down to the final strokes. We haven't put it in quite yet, but we're going to be doing it soon, Trump said, adding that he would reveal his plan alongside House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Now, Republicans, off the record, of course, are pushing this idea of universal access there you go. Not insurance for everybody. Well, so yeah, if you want access to insurance, you can. That doesn't insure you. That doesn't get you insurance. That ins- gets you access to insurance. Because they're not sure if they can come up with a plan that will be as robust as Trump is trying to push here. Mm. Not all the coverage. Yeah. But coverage right. for some. So it's interesting. We'll see where they go with this because it's kind of... Uh, as, as, as it says, there are not a lot of details. President-elect Trump also said the first order he'll sign as president will be to create stronger borders. 
It's something he said before, but the promise gained attention Monday evening after the portion of his Times of London interview was highlighted on social media because it included his definition of day one. Did you see this? No. Day, what's day one? Day one is Friday. He's inaugurated, and day one, he and he said that multiple times. Oh, so All he's going to get said, back and start doing business. Day one, when I take the oath, I'm going to do this. And Obama said it. He said it. They, wow. This is what yeah. you say. Yeah. On, and day all one. All the other candidates said it. Well, day one, this is this is from the article. Day one, uh, day one, which well, I consider to be Monday as opposed to Friday or Saturday, right? Oh, I mean, oh, day, day one three. is going to be Monday. It's actually day four. Because I don't want to be signing it and getting it mixed up with lots of celebrations and parties, Trump said, according to the transcript <laughs> of the interview. Trump will be inaugurated on a Friday, and he's expected to send cel- uh, attend celebrations that night. Yeah, yeah. Day one's actually Monday. Well, then, then Sunday's the day of church, the day you get, you know. Right. Saturday night, he'll be pressing his suit for church. There you go. Then Monday, he'll get going. He deserves the weekend. Oh, sure. So, so, you know, well, it's just not as powerful to say, I promise on day four, right. I will sign So it's been kind of a, a thing that's out there. Okay. Monica Crawley on Monday announced that she would give up the position she was slated to take in Donald Trump's White House. She was Trump's pick to be a senior director of strategic communications at the National Security Council. She announced her decision amid allegations of widespread plagiarism. Mm. With her uh, PhD work, her book, Ugh. and stuff, she like plagiarized a podiatrist at one point. I think. Um, after much reflection, I've decided to remain in New York to persuade other op- or pursue other opportunities. Will not be taking a position in the upcoming administration. Blah 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 blah. Wow. Plus, they're they're not like reprinting her book. Yeah, they stopped the the printing of the book and everything. On Monday, FBI agents arrested the wife of Omar Mateen, the gunman who shot uh, last June uh, killed forty nine people in a mass shooting in a nightclub in Orlando. Uh, CBS News reports that Noor Salman facing charges of obstruction of justice and aiding and abetting. Woo. And finally, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, making a lot of money in $980 million. It'll cross a billion here in the next couple weeks and make a lot of money for him. Is at the center of a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of a group of angry Florida Star Wars fans who claim Disney utilized a bait-and-switch advertising campaign. In the weeks prior to the spinoff's film debut... Uh, Disney and Lucasfilm released marketing materials on a nearly daily basis. While many of the commercials varied slightly, fans believed the imagery they were seeing would be reflective of the film. Where are the classic stormtroopers in the water? Or the mm. back of Vader's helmet as he, as he stares at a red computer screen? What about KS, uh, K2SO running with Jin and Cassian in the Death Star plans in hand? Asked an irate Joshua Lieberman, the super fan who filed the lawsuit. Great question. Lieberman's claims uh, Disney purposely used bullet shots to hype Rogue One. A derogatory term refers to the use of imagery and dialogue that is created with the sole purpose of misleading the public. Mm. Man, this is huge. When my daughter cosplays as Jin Erso for the premiere and created a huge sign that read, I rebel... For that that line not to be in the film, she was devastated. Is it I rebel or I rebel? No, she says I rebel. Okay. The group, she's British, so. Yeah. The group of fans seek a refund of $14 for everyone who paid to view Rogue One in the state of Florida, along with damages in amounts of $2 billion wow. to cover pain and suffering. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow, we've hit a nerve. Pain and suffering, Matt. Yeah, there were reshoots, and they... they Poor girl. They apparently recorded a bunch of shots they, they and then they put them out there and then they didn't use them in the movie okay do so, they realize that there probably isn't a movie out there that hasn't had some scene that was in the trailer that didn't end up in the movie yeah but no one really tears those trailers no, apart like they do Star not Wars. every scene can yeah 
I mean, the the trailer was done years before the movie, right? Not really. There were some really key moments in the trailers, though. Like that one there where she goes, they go, I rebel, you know, and then they looked at her and kind of went, okay, that wasn't in the movie. Uh, There was uh, scenes with some TIE fighters that weren't there. People were upset, Matt. Upset! I'm sure glad Don Williams was able to finish this song because Don Williams, uh, John Williams' brother. Yes. Uh, did brother many times removed, I guess. You know, this is another thing that people were really upset about because this was in the trailer for Rogue One and it didn't end up in the movie. Yeah, a lot of Don's music never gets in the movie, which is why we're actually allowed to play it. Mm. Wonderful work by Don Williams. Um, there's some apparently some big birthdays as well. well and speaking in of Hollywood. Star Wars, oh, yeah, uh, James Earl Jones. Guess how old he is. 60. Tell me this doesn't know. It's not 60? L- just listen to his breathing. It's not his breathing. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, his, it's it his iron lung, actually. <laughs> He's 85 years old today. Oh, wow. James Earl Jones. 85. Betty White, birthday today. Guess how old? 95. Thank you for being 95 years old. Hmm. This is her iron lung. She's pretty, she's doing a lot better than James Earl. Ninety five. She's still kicking. That's great. And Jim Carrey. Oh. Let's see that in an instant replay. <laughs> this is when he found out Trump was president. Uh, Jim Carrey's 55 years old today. He doesn't make him like that anymore. No. Has he made a movie lately? What was Jim Carrey's last movie? He's done cameos in movies. Yeah. He was in the Anchorman 2 movie. Oh, yeah. Everyone was. Yeah. (laughs) That was a big scene. Hey, um, okay, so much to do. Holy cow. The time just flies when you're having fun. Donald Trump, confidence in Trump is dropping... In his transition, by the way, according to a CNN ORC poll, which, you know, Donald Trump doesn't see CNN as a legitimate news source. But really? They, they did a poll questioning uh, the the um, people's belief in him. Donald Trump will become the president Friday with an approval rating of just 40 percent. According to the new poll, the lowest of any recent president, 44 points below that of President Barack Obama. When he was when he was transitioning in, that is crazy. Forty four points lower, twenty points lower than um, than Bush and Clinton. So Obama had an eighty eight percent approval rating going yep. in. Wow. Well, remember hope and change. He was the president of hope. Hope and change. I didn't. I don't remember getting any change. No, never have enough change. I had a lot of hope, and uh, now apparently. People don't have hope. So President Trump maybe is the president of hopeless Hmm. and change. You know, we'll see. But a lot of people are mad. They don't they don't like him. And that's even Republican support. Right. And a lot of them are saying as well, they attribute it to how he's handled some of the things since his uh, since the since November when he was elected, because they're not liking his tweeting. Some of the Russia stuff scandal came out. 
He doesn't like that. I mean, some people don't think you should take on Hollywood stars. Oh yeah, you don't. That's that's just so mean to pick on those privileged millionaires. <laughs> that's mean. Anyway, Donald Trump. By the way, Friday is the big day. Friday, get ready, lock and loaded. Day negative three. It'll be a sensual yet. Um, can't remember the other word. Probably an understated inauguration. Fewer people are signing up. Soft and sensual. Get ready for it. We'll be covering it all this entire week. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, our businesses losing their power. You know, the old boys club that used to supposedly all these old businesses that used to run the world. Are they losing their strength, their power? Well, according to our next guest, they are. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, the Republican Party is well known for their business-oriented platform and agenda. This past election, not a single CEO from a Fortune 100 company donated to President-elect Donald Trump's campaign. Does this mean that the old boys club is losing influence in America? Is this a good thing? Here to speak with us today about this topic is Johan Chu, an assistant professor of organizations and strategy at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Dr. Chu, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hello. Good morning. What a uh, what a crazy year um, politically anyway, because we heard we heard Bernie Sanders, you know, you know, demolishing or trying to demolish uh, corporate America and the impact it has on the political world. Yet we saw Hillary Clinton pretty well tied to a lot of corporate America companies or at least Wall Street companies. Donald Trump, who is a billionaire and and has now, you know, nominated a lot of billionaires to his cabinet, um, he didn't receive, I guess, any support from Fortune 100 companies. What is going on with big business and uh, corporate or and uh, government interests? So I think what's happening is, you know, the fact that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are getting, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was, you know, seriously being considered mm. as a as a serious uh, Democratic candidate. Donald Trump actually got the nomination, became elected president. That is maybe a symptom that. We don't really have a cohesive uh, corporate America at the moment, because uh, you know, uh, if you look at say Hillary or George W. Bush, uh, and you go back in time, most of these presidents, up till say Eisenhower or before post World War II, had the support or had some support from the core of corporate America. Yeah, it's in, in fact in your article, "Corporate America's Old Boys Club is Dead." Um, you you talk about the fact that I mean, really, the I guess the one of the big leaders of corporate America support was George Bush, who had twenty one direct ties to corporate or to twenty one corporations when he was president. Is is it um, has there been anyone quite like George Bush? Well, if you go back in time, I would argue that this was more the norm than it is now. 
Yeah. So Bill Clinton, to compare to George Bush, that, you know, he had much fewer ties to corporate America. Uh, but if you look at, if you go back into the 1950s, 1960s, you see a lot more involvement of the central people in the corporate network, uh, in government, in military. And, you know, this brings up concerns where people are worried that there's this military industrial complex, which to a large degree there was. But the interesting thing here is because everybody's tied together and it's not just one person, uh, people aren't free to just act on their whims. And it ends up that they become more moderate than you'd expect them to be. Mm. Is it is it about corporate America support? Like, do companies? Is it about getting the company's support or the leaders' support? Because it does seem like there's a lot of fundraisers going on where mm-hmm. corporate, especially high tech company uh, leaders, go pay a lot of money, maybe for Democrats, um, or or is it more actually getting companies to to be more supportive of these com- of these candidates? Well, that's an interesting question too. Because in previous years, you might have said that those were the same thing. Yeah. That a corporate head who was invested uh, in certain kinds of government relations, that would, you know, would be for the sake of the company, but also it would be aligned with their company. And now you get things like uh, this year uh, or last year, where the two heads of Renaissance Capital are actually both, you know, one is very much in support of Trump. One is very much in support uh, of Hillary, and this never happened before. Right. This kind of thing doesn't happen. Split. I mean, because it used to be like it seemed like Republicans were very pro-business, pro-corporate. Democrats had all of their other constituencies. But even that seems to be blurring uh, through this process. No, you know, right now I would argue except for Trump and Bernie – Mainstream Democrats, mainstream Republicans for a long time have had the same support base from corporate America. It's been, though, it's been different in that uh, if you look at policies, typically, yes, it has been true that corporate executives have preferred the Republican policies. But if you look at the core of the network of the people who are all connected to everybody else, they've actually tended to be a bit more pragmatic and when needed, uh, in their opinion, to support the future of American business, they've supported things like labor laws uh, and worker compensation, uh, more universal health care, maybe not quite to that degree, but you know, more health care coverage. All these things that you think should be more a democratic kind of concern, uh, in some cases, the corp- corporate America, the, the center of that network, has pushed these initiatives even more than the politicians have wanted to go. Hmm. What, what do you what do you suggest is the cause of this? I mean, what's why why are a lot of people frustrated so frustrated with corporate America's influence on politics? Well, because there's this dichotomy. <clears throat> there's one side of it uh, where if you look at each individual corporation and you you look at things say like the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And there you see all these different corporations and, and small coalitions of corporations all lobbying for their own interests. And so it ends up having this plethora of weird exemptions, uh, specific provisions that help specific corporations. 
So corporations have always done that. Uh, from their birth back in the turn of the previous century, they've always gone out and they've always been powerful and they still are powerful and they get what they want, which is, might be at the expense of the public. Yeah, it almost, hand, but it almost feels like there's a backlash now, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is that when the corporations were all really, really connected to each other, and so there were maybe a hundred people uh, at that point, sadly, all white men, but they were all connected to each other and they met each other often at board meetings. What happened was at the very center of the network, there was this consensus that you couldn't have this uh, naked self-interest, that you had to have what they called an enlightened self-interest, which included making sure that the system that they were working in uh, perpetuated itself. So you couldn't have something which was going to be so bad for the rest of America that people were wanting to upend the system, like you've seen recently. Mm. They tried to keep it moderate so that you know they realized that they were on top and they wanted to keep it that way. And to keep it that way, they had to keep the system going as it is. And you couldn't do that if everybody else wanted out. That's true, huh? And it seems like, in a, in a way, the press were probably kept out of it to a degree, not allowed as in. So, But now you have a media or even a Donald Trump that can out one individual company, Ford, for building you know cars abroad or moving their – uh, car manufacturing abroad, he he makes one comment, and all of a sudden, everyone realizes they're they're fighting for themselves now. Mm-hmm. And this is also, you know, one set is the media side where now, you know, there you don't have to go through the whole media establishment to get your message out. You you send one tweet, and everybody has to has to pick it up. But the other side of it uh, is that. In many ways, you know, I don't think that 20 years ago or 30 years ago, a president could or president-elect could have done that because that's where all the support was coming from. They were so tightly tied into, uh, into the corporations that they couldn't. So yeah. in one way, it's really good that this is happening, that, you know, Trump or Bernie Sanders can be anti-corporate. On the other hand, the problem that, as I and my courses see it, is that this stops corporations. What has happened is that it stops corporations from being a really consequential force uh, for progress, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it keeps them out of it. One of the things you mentioned in your article was the fact that uh, some research you've done that when a board member is um, – or when a, a leader is on a board – these board members share from – and many of them are on multiple boards, mm-hmm. but they share their best practices from board to board to board. But they also share where they donate their money from board to board to board. Yes. So this is something where people – initially, this uh, – you know, my, my colleagues uh, and you know, very old scholars too, they've been looking at corporate America with a lot of suspicion. And this all started off uh, – as people trying to figure out, uh, in the words, uh, words of Bill Domhoff, who rules America. And it came out that there were all these connections between the corporations. Uh, typically, you know, one of the most visible are these board interlocks, where two directors are on the same uh, corporate board together. Uh, and then 
also with other government and military and other, uh, other ties. And they pointed at this and said, ha, huh, here's evidence that there's this elite cabal that rules America, and people were really worried about it. But then what, as we looked more and more into it, we found that what this does is, yes, it makes you know, corporate innovation spread across this network, but also things like political opinion. And the thing about political opinion is that if you get a large enough group of people in America, even if they're mostly business persons uh, who would typically skew Republican, you get enough of a, of, uh, of a subset of America that if you sort of average all of their political tendencies together, you get actually a pretty moderate, pretty pragmatic kind of stance. Hmm. And that's what we no longer have. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And what, what's your take on Donald Trump's um, cabinet that, although not like Fortune necessarily 100 companies, some of them, these are billionaire, more billionaires than I guess any other cabinet um, and so still deeply integrated in the business world, maybe just not in the Fortune 100. Well, I think that's what you just said is the problem, it's the deeply integrated part of it. Yeah. Uh, because the network between corporations is so sparse now, before, if you picked a com- uh, somebody from a large company, that person was going to be really integrated into the network most likely. And so that person would the opinions would be shaped by the opinions of their peers and their peers' peers, and it would most likely, one, be moderate, but two, be something that the corporate community could get behind. Now, because the network between uh, corporates is so sparse, what you're getting is you're getting very powerful people in their own right, very rich, very powerful, but they're not as connected to everybody else in corporate America. And as a result, what you really get is somebody who can talk about very parochial needs and can muster very parochial support, but you won't get the opinion of a broad spectrum of business leaders, and you won't get the support of a broad spectrum of business leaders by having these people in your cabinet. So they may have more extreme positions. They are unfettered. They yeah. can have whatever positions they want. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's... Um, because, I, I, but I guess some would say, well, yeah. I mean, Hollywood can be cohesive, and a lot of the Hollywood executives can think alike, but they still maybe don't think like Middle America. Exactly. And or I guess the same would be on the other coast, uh, the East Coast. You know, uh, the the great um, Wall Street thinkers. A lot of them don't necessarily think like Middle America. So it's, there's this divide. Um, it, it seems like from middle America does are there corporate um, leaders that that seem to um, support more of a middle America conservative approach so I'm sure there are uh, I just don't see them very much uh, right now yeah. in Washington that's yeah uh, and part of it is we touched on it before is that in when corporate CEOs are actually powerful, so when, you know, before, say, the mid-1980s, when in many cases you would mention a CEO's name and people would know what company he was heading, and it was almost, sadly at that point, he, and you, saw, mm. and you looked at the history there, you'd be like, okay, this person is tremendously powerful because 
he has you know the support and he will be stably be at the head of this very large company nowadays with the decline in ceo tenure most ceos are really busy just surviving yeah uh so most ceos cannot actually go out uh and credibly say that they represent their company or the industry or business leaders they're actually much more interested in not forced to be much more interested in the bottom line performance of their own company, they can't really concentrate on anything else. Yeah, keep your head down and just keep, keep you know, bailing water probably. Exactly. That's interesting. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Johan Chu, Dr. Johan Chu, who is an assistant professor of organizations and strategy at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And we are discussing... Uh, why businesses couldn't stop Trump? What's happening to corporate America? Are they losing their power in the political world? Interesting stuff. Stick with us. By the way, super interesting now when we think of so many leaders gathering in um, Davos, Switzerland, uh, to have their their political global summit. Interesting. Interesting uh, timing for this discussion. Stick with us. We'll have more in a minute. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Johan Chu. He is an assistant professor of organizations and strategy at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And he's talking about us, uh, talking with us about uh, power of businesses. Is it fading? Is the old boys club, you know, losing its grip on the political world as it used to have? Dr. Chu, again, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Matt. Is I mean, I guess businesses have always, you know, had power. Traditionally, white men um, in power. But you're saying overall, it's business is starting to to maybe lose its hold on the political structure. Well, I'm saying that it's each individual business may actually be more powerful than it was before. Yeah, like a Facebook so may have more power as an ind- independent group, but collectively. But yes, but collectively, you know, they are now not really, they may be incapable of unified political action, hmm. which they used to be able to do quite well back, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century. Now it seems it's every business out for itself. Nobody really looking at the interests of, you know, of the business class as a whole. And and is that some of that in my mind seems like because some of that is just political. I it it seems I don't remember a politician um, wielding as much power. Not a politician, past business executives individually having as much of a political agenda publicly as maybe some of these tech leaders do. I mean. The tech leaders, one of the first thing Donald Trump did was invite all of the tech leaders in, and he put them all in their special positions and these executives. But some of them could not stand the man cannot, and literally have a very strong political, um, I guess, uh, 
positioning uh, about life in general. So is it I, – I guess they're becoming more powerful individually, but collectively as a whole, they're just not as unified. Exactly. Everybody's pulling in different directions because, you know, you do have the tech executives who, who are out in California tend to be more liberal. Not yeah. all, but yeah. many. But then you also have people in finance or oil or other ways, other industries who tend to be actually much more conservative. Right. Uh, and before, all of these people were bound together and the tech executives and the, the finance executives and all executives would either know each other from service on board t- together or have friends in common from service on boards together. And as a result, there were all these channels for communication between these people. And so they would communicate. And over time, uh, as they rose in business, they would have become socialized to think like what at that point in time, business people were thought that they ought to think like, Mm. which was uh, at the very top, it tended to be quite moderate and quite pragmatic politically and also prone to working within the political system with politicians, with the political apparatus, rather than going outside of it. Is, what impact did the financial crisis have? And you know, some of the subsequent legislation, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, what, what impact did, those, did that moment in history have on weakening the, the trust in business? So it definitely was a reflection of reduced trust in business. And I think it might actually have been what I just said, more a reflection of the reduced trust than Sarbanes actually causing reduced trust. Hmm. But one thing that did happen about that time was everything sort of crystallized. And before Sarbanes Oxley, uh, if you served on multiple boards, uh, multiple corporate boards, people thought that was a mark of really high status. So people would hire you for their board because you already served on these three other big boards and say, hey, this person uh, you know, must be a good person to serve on these boards. This person will have a lot of good corporate information, business intelligence, business scan that they can do because they have this exposure to multiple boards. And as a result, you had a lot of directors serving on a lot of boards and they talk on these boards with each other and afterwards at dinner. And so information and innovations and political opinions all spread throughout corporate America, the largest companies, pretty quickly. It was a pretty unified group. Yeah. After Sarbanes-Oxley, what happens is that uh, Fortune comes out with us. Was it it Fortune or Forbes? They come out with this thing which is saying America's most overworked directors. They're not saying that it's good to be on many boards now. They're saying that you want to be only on a few so you can concentrate on the business of those boards. Hmm. And as a result we get a very disconnected board structure now where there are not many people who serve on multiple boards, definitely not enough to tie the whole board network together. And so you don't, it's impossible now actually using the board network to create a consensus in corporate America. Yeah. is Yeah. That, the, that's a great way to put it. And a board network is, it seems like some of this might also be because, these companies are global at a level they've never been global. As as we've moved more global, it, it, I would assume, you know, 50 years ago, these companies were national kind of companies. A lot of their work was done here. But as they're moving more global, is it harder to create a global network of of boards? So what's happened is, I think, uh, 
in places, say, like Europe, there's evidence that there's becoming a trans-European border network, which did not exist before. Mm. But with the rise of the EU and, you know, re- and the recent social, cultural and political trends there, uh, it sort of started to pull together a little bit, which is in marked contrast with what's happening in the U.S. Because U.S. companies, even though they may uh, have broad foreign interests, if you look at their boards, typically they've not been that international. So it's not really that you're getting, you're, you're, uh, what you're getting is that all the boards are now spread thin because they have to be global. It's much more that they are getting U.S. persons typically to do this, but each person is just on fewer boards. Okay. And they're not, and they're not necessarily getting European leaders to come be on the boards either. There are some Europeans, there are some Asians, there are some Africans, but no, it's not really that that's hmm. driving it. Yeah. Is, do, where do you see Donald Trump leading this? Um, it seems like in a way he's, he's actually, instead of unifying networks, he might be you know, pitting everyone against each other. I don't know. Like, uh, it's, you know, with Donald Trump, I really think nobody really knows what he's going to do at right. this stage. Yeah. And because he's not bound to this network of corporate leaders, uh, you know, the parameters of what he can or will do are very wide. And so it's really hard to tell what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, and it's it's really it's interesting, too, because he is a guy that likes to be accepted. So if if a network of Fortune 100 leaders got together and had a strong board and they could bring him in, he'd probably love it. But because he's always been on the outside fighting to get in, it seems like. Yeah, but you don't necessarily know. Do you sense that these companies are going to change their lobbying efforts? Or is this still each man for themselves, each company for themselves? They're still lobbying. They're still donating money. They're still doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. So I don't think that they are capable now because of the because they have so few interconnections of doing anything that's unified. Hmm. I, I think that right now they can't mobilize as a group. They can mobilize in small clusters, but you know, I in the study in the in the academic study that uh, the the op-ed is based on, we find that basically at this point, corporate say, CEOs or companies, the top 500 companies in America, are less connected to each other than the several hundred million people that are on Twitter. Mm. Wow. It's actually yeah. really, really bad. So I would think that if they do become cohesive, it's through mechanisms that are outside of corporate boards. I don't think corporate boards work anymore for that. Hmm. What, what do you sense then? What will that cost us? What does it do when our corporate networks aren't unified um, and aren't you know, politically acting together? What, what will that, how will that impact our country? Well, what you get is you get, say, 1,000, 3,000 very, very powerful people who are unconstrained. Each working and for their own – you know, their own goal for their own goal, whether it be ideological or financial. And sometimes at loggerheads with each other, sometimes one side will win. And so you get you don't get any coherence. You, you don't 
if you're anti-corporate, you don't even have one really big corporate core to rally against. If you think the corporations can do good, there's nowhere for, for them to actually do good in a coherent way. Hmm. Each goes in their own individual way, and maybe they do good, maybe they do bad, but there's no core that actually moves as one, and there can't be with the current uh, board network. Ken, do you, do you sense a really polarizing figure like Trump? Could he act as a unifier for the corporate network again? Could he bring them together? I mean, if he keeps picking them off one by one, maybe they would unite. Uh, I don't know, because yeah. I, I think there, there is something to what you're saying, in that if you look at when they were the most cohesive, it was after World War II, when the labor movement was strong, and government was strong, and so they were trying to figure out how, as, how you know, as a corporate capitalist class, they could cohere and survive. And so they tended to be, you know, quite cohesive at that point in time. And then later, when labor is weaker and government regulations start going away in the 1980s, they start to decohere a little bit. They start being as cohesive as they were. So maybe if somebody, if uh, the leaders, the corporate leaders feel that actually Trump is making a direct attack on all of them at once, then it would work. But I don't know that one by one would work at this point Yeah. in terms of making them stick together again. Mm. Interesting, interesting times we live in. We appreciate you, uh, Dr. Johan Chu. Thank you for your great work there at uh, the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And again, everybody, you can go read the article he wrote, uh, Corporate America's Old Boys Club is Dead, and That's Why Big Business Couldn't Stop Trump. Interesting to think of uh, the network the network's not uh, so networked anymore, and it'll have impact, right? Now now we have individual companies, organizations, leaders fighting us, uh, kind of, or fighting ideas one by one instead of uh, kind of a unified front. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up hour number one of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So what happens when every uh, business is so independently fighting for what they want or so busy just running their business that they no longer are thinking as a whole? They're no longer thinking about innovating uh, our systems and technologies. It's uh, It might set us up for some for some potential problems. One thing I do know... Uh, when it comes, for example, to all of these high-tech cars, self-driving automobiles, it seems like Ford, Mercedes, Tesla, these companies are all – they got to somehow work together in order to make that, those networks work, right? To make sure that you have you know, filling stations that can – or recharging stations nationwide, that you can build the grid, that you have the same um, requirements on your cars. So – there's always this ebb and flow, it seems like, of working together, working alone, independence versus uh, working together in a unified way. It'll be interesting to see what Donald Trump does. Does he play on that? Does he create more scarcity or more unity? I guess we'll find out. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the show. Hour number two. Now, here's the deal. It's Tuesday. So when you think about it, because of Martin Luther King holiday, you're already have the hardest day done. Now it's Tuesday. Tomorrow's Wednesday. By noon tomorrow, you're halfway through the week. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is always hard for me. Why? (sighs) I don't want to talk about it. Oh, boy. Brings back memories. Yeah. Oh, we've got a great topic coming up. Uh, uh, Caitlin Thomas will be joining us uh, later in the hour about famous people who deserve holidays but don't have any. They lost. They don't have a holiday, but they should have one. And I think what we do is we lump them all in, right? Well, so it's more of a focus on if there are holidays, we get more days off, which is a great idea. And I think everyone's on board there. Yeah. So but except have to, employers, yeah, it's, yeah. You have to though designate a, a a needed necessary holiday. Yeah. So what are we missing? We're missing a really strong holiday for women. A suffragette mm. type of movement holiday. Like this woman? Yeah. Betty White? Betty White turned 85. Oh, 95. 95 years young. That's a great... If you Why can't can, we have Betty White Day? Well, maybe that's what we ought to call it, Betty White Day. If you could be 95 and have Betty White's energy, would you not want to be 95? Yeah. I would in a second. It's also, by the way, James Earl Jones Day. He turned uh, birthday. He turned eighty-five today. <sighs> a little Don jo- Don um, Williams music. Distant cousin to John Williams. Again, this was not used in Rogue One. Not used. And people are furious. Oh, I know. This is the song that got away. This is like a victory march into Tatooine. Wow. Thank you. That's impressive. By the way, this weekend I was supposed to watch Rogue One. Never got around to it. Never went out to a movie. Did you go see Hidden Figures? No. I went to the movies. Did you? We went and saw L.A. L.A. Land. La, 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 land. What'd you think? Loved it. Did you? I knew you would. Loved it. Little toe tapper loves Hollywood. Yeah. Good dancing scenes. We'll talk about uh, famous people who deserve a holiday. Also, we will be getting into four subtle clues that reveals a man that reveals a man's character. Four clues. So, when you think of somebody that you believe has incredible character, what are the signs that they have character? Not that they are a character; that would be different. They have character. So, we'll get to that fun, as well as uh, should a guy go to prison for stealing a TV remote? Hmm. Ooh. Have I mean, you ever been in front of the TV and not had the remote? Ever been in the ever worst. had a remote and not had a clue how to use it? I have three remotes right now and I'm tired of it. Tired of it. Especially because one of them I lose. It's a tiny little remote. I lose it all the time. Apple TV? Yes. 
Driving me crazy. We'll get to all that fun, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President-elect Donald Trump will maintain his personal Twitter account and other social media after his inauguration on Friday, transition officials report. The move comes amid uncertainty over how Trump's administration will use the White House certified handles, including POTUS and FLOTUS. Barack Obama has maintained two Twitter accounts during his presidency, one official, the other personal. The president-elect's advisors say that Trump wants to continue building his base of roughly, as it just crossed this weekend, 20 million followers on Twitter. He wants to, as a president, he wants to keep growing his base yeah. of Twitter followers. Right. I just had a Flotus soup at a Chinese restaurant. Oh, it was so I good. I once had a Flotus. Oh, I hurt like a... Martin Luther King III said he had a very constructive meeting with President-elect Donald Trump on Monday, the holiday honoring his father. King said he has stressed the issue of poverty in his meeting with Trump, something his father would also have expressed concerns about. I think my father would be very concerned about the fact that there are 50 to 60 million people living in poverty, and somehow we've got to create a climate for all boats to be lifted, he said, adding that he and others would continue to evaluate Trump's performance in representing all Americans. In other news, General Motors will announce a $1 billion investment in its factories that will create a, a, a keep around 1,000 jobs. A person briefed with the matter tells AP the Detroit automaker will make the announcement Tuesday morning. The investment is part of the normal process of equipping factories to, uh, to build new models, and it's been planned for months, the source says. Multiple factories will get part of the money, but GM does not plan to state where the new jobs will go, according to the person it's uh, leaking, I guess, the information. GM CEO Mary Barrera said the company has no plans to change where it produces small cars due to President-elect Trump's threats from earlier this month. And finally, Russian authorities are suspected of doing something Sherlock's producers might consider as dastardly as meddling in the U.S. elections, leaking the hit BBC detective series season finale online. Oh, the Russians. The Russian-language version of the fourth season finale appeared on Saturday, a day before the BBC aired it, and evidence including a continuity continuity announcement points to it being a leaked copy of the episode provided to state broadcaster Channel 1. According to reports, BBC Worldwide urged fans not to watch or share the leaked version. Of course that worked yeah the british press uh there has in the british press there has been plenty of speculation that the leaking of the episode may have been moscow's revenge for british moves including the expansion of bbc's russian language output really um now if did i hear correctly that sherlock uh cumber cumber cumberbatch benedict cumberbatch yes. benedict and and watson yes are there's a frosty relationship. There's a frosty relationship, which is what's ending the series, Possibly. Right? It's not ending. Oh, I thought this was this, the final one. People are speculating that these two aren't good, solid friends. They're not So therefore, buddies. the show will end. Yeah. Which they, I don't think has any bearing on anything. No, they can't. That's my favorite four episodes of an hour and a Three. half. Three. Three episodes of an hour and a half. Speaking of taking holidays, the British like to take holidays. Three episodes in a season? Yeah. Come on. Come on. But they're long. They're big episodes. So, okay, they're like one and a half episodes each. I I decided if you're going to put together a series for Netflix, Mm. you really would want it to be a a half-hour comedy series because it's 20 minutes a a show. There's a few of those. Like Fuller House. And you get caught. Yeah. You're watching it. You're like, oh, that was quick. It was fast. Oh, there's another one. Just watch another one. Bink. Bink. And then you're like, hey, I'll shower after the next one. Right. And then before Bink. you know it, like five days have passed. It's nighttime and your teeth are gross. And, and you've your lost kids your are... job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. I mean, allegedly. 
because that's never happened to us. Hey, um, 2017, Trump inauguration. This is happening. It all begins Thursday night, you know. What? Thursday day, actually. Says who? The celebration for the inauguration. How so? Thursday, January 19th, wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Uh, Cemetery. Right. Trump and Vice President-elect Mike Pence will honor the country's veterans. Well, they... As every president does, they fake hold the wreath as actually the Marine holds yeah. the thing and backs it up and sets yeah. it down. And you know the Marine's head is like – in his head he's thinking, what, are these guys not going to lift anything? Yeah. Like, do I have to do all this? <laughs> Help out over there, guys. Come on. That night there's a welcome concert at nice. uh, Lincoln Memorial. Some cover bands I heard. Yeah. Good times. Friday is the swearing-in ceremony. Nice. 9.30 a.m. You want to be there early. Chief Justice John Roberts, Jr., We'll do the swearing in, hopefully this time. Depending on who you talk to, there's plenty of great seats still available. Yeah, tons of seats available. In, in fact, fact, if you want seats, go to Donald Trump's Twitter I, handle. and I, can... I, I read a story about uh, a call for seat fillers in the D.C. area. Oh, really? So that certain places will, uh, I guess, not be so sparsely. Well, can I just suggest bring in homeless that don't and, and feed them and give them a day and there give them go. blankets and yeah. take care of them. Don't pay. Don't have a seat filler. Yeah. Well, no, it could be a seat filler because, you know, there's people that come and perform. Oh, yeah. and you yeah. don't want to leave a huge gap. Right. You don't want a big gaping but hole. Of course, but of course, it's being characterized as there's no one in that seat to begin with. So that's right. Giving away a seat. There's fewer people are attending this one. But that's part of that's part of Donald Trump's slow and sensual. Inauguration ceremonies. Did you hear this story? <laughs> this you, is the music that will be playing in the background. You heard the porta potty cover up story? Yes. There's a company that is providing the the portable, uh, I guess, restrooms on the nation's capital on the cap, on the mall where yeah. this will take place. And the company's called Don's Johns. And for some reason, the name Don's Johns on these toilet rentals are being covered up. Someone's going around with some tape and covering up the name of Don's Johns. You can't have the president's name used that way. But it's the name of the company. No, The company's uh, been around for years. But if it were Barack's, you know, bathroom, that wouldn't have looked good either. And they've used the name. They've been used for events for years. No one's complained. No one's ever covered them up. And so the company says they're going to go back. They're going to send some people out there and take the tape off. Uh, They're going to cover it up, uncover it, because that's our name. We're proud of who we are. Does Donald own? Does Donald own the um, the Don's Johns, or is that another Don? It's a whole different. Has nothing to do with the president elect, but they're covering up because you know his name. They had to put all of his little hotel names on it, like Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago John, and Trump Tower. Yeah. So uh, starting in at 9.30, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and America's Got Talent alumna Jackie Ivancho hmm. have accepted invitations. They'll be singing during the events there. Hillary Clinton will be there. Yep. President Bill Clinton will be there. Uh, pre- former President George W. Bush and First Lady will be there as well as Jimmy Carter. Hmm. That's not what I expected it to be. All right. Okay. That's just right. that's yeah. just somebody's playing with buttons. Was that a button? It's a button. <laughs> no, I've got some whipped cream over here. I was like, you guys yeah, want some? You having some cocoa? I see. What's going on? Turn your mic off though, if you're going to use the whipped cream. So lo- lots of people in attendance. This is exciting, It'll and so again, we we talked about this last hour. If uh, you know where I was when President Obama was inaugurated, where? I was in Belize. I was on a cruise. Oh really? Yeah. Honeyman. 
Uh, no, just a cruise. Just cruising to yeah. Belize. We're just down there hanging out. That was a that was a historic that was a really that was a really cool inauguration. Yeah, walk that. in, sit down. You're like, oh well, look, they had it on TV. I was expecting, you know, something else, lot anything of, else. A lot of people pushing back on anybody that would be willing to sing. Yep. Now here's this is an important lesson because why would Hillary Clinton go? Because uh, she said in a statement that they are acknowledging the democratic. History of the peaceful transfer of power. There you go. And if she doesn't show up, it's seen as a protest, and she doesn't want to do that. But if you're singing at the event, yeah. you're not. So they'll honor Hillary for going, but they'll, they're mad at anybody that would sing. Now, if her, if her husband wasn't the former president of the United States, she probably wouldn't go. Well, no, I bet she'd still go. She was, she was a dignitary. She would have had a top front row seat. She's not in politics. She's not connected to anything. I don't. I don't know but why she's she would magnanimous. Be there. She's wonderful. She's bigger and understands that this is all bigger than Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hey, by the way, plus there's you... free popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know where I was when Terry South was on his cruise to Belize? Where? I was at home because it was a snow day. I remember it well. You were in high school. No. In Seattle, Seattle had snow. Mm-hmm. Wow! So everything shuts down. It was like a skiff. But yeah, that's how I celebrate Terry's cruise to Belize. It was great. I, it was a great, great cruise to Belize. I mean, I remember watching President Reagan's inauguration. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a speech. It goes I on. I remember Carter's. Come on. I kind of feel like all of them are just a little too long, a little too preachy. Yeah, but th- this is history. Well, I think people get caught up in the fact that, hey, it's history. But This is – Barack Obama was in, was an incredibly historic moment for America. That was right. such a – and again, he had like an 80-something percent approval rate. Donald Trump's struggling now because he's got about a 40 percent approval rate according to fake news CNN. Well, well it's a Gallup poll. But they, uh, or, yeah, it's an and, orc, and, and yeah. Trump's already come out on Twitter saying that these are the same polls that said I wasn't going to win, and so they're all fake. And blah, blah, blah. is Trump going to roast Obama like Obama roasted Bush, as Bush was sitting right behind Did Barack he? Obama? Did he roast him? Oh yeah, I don't think George W. knew what was going on. But you know what? I don't think at that point you care because Donald or President Obama is right after this uh, inauguration. He's heading to. Um, Palm Springs. He's just out of here. He says he's going someplace warm. He's taking a helicopter, get on his airplane, neither of which are Air Force One anymore. No, I think he will be on. One. Well, he'll, he'll be on that plane. On that plane, but not yeah. under the title. He, he gets one final trip out of here. Yeah, but apparently not flying under. No, you only fly that way when you're the president. He's not the president at that point. <sighs> then you go to, oh, how great would that be? Your first golf game. Yeah, just Freedom. Freedom. Well, there's not, not really. There's not some soldier with a, a the, the nuclear code. Yeah, but you still, there. but you still have every other problem of being the president. Right? Oh yeah, you get a tea time whenever you want. Oh, That's sure. great. Hey, but then you got to carry you know twenty Secret Service with you everywhere you go. But they can chase your ball down. Hey, speaking of Air Force One, did you hear what they told President Elect Trump when uh, he wanted to use his Trump airplane instead of Air Force One? No, what they what say? advice they gave him? What, what advice? Use the force. Have you talked to him about that, Terry? You got to take him aside and talk to him about that. Really? You can't do that. Okay. 
little meeting. Yep. Off air. We'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, apparently, eight men now control as much wealth as the world's poorest 3.6 billion people. Eight men. Yep. And they're all probably at this Davos meeting in Switzerland right now. That's right. Yeah. 3.6 billion people do not have the money of eight men. Not even women. Right. Eight men. Interesting, not all white men either. No, there's a couple. Uh, well, I think the third is the, uh, I forget his name, but he's from Mexico. Yeah, Slim something. Slim Whitman? No. no that's a different guy. It's a different guy. Great singer. But he's a guy that's invested in the New York Times yeah. and all this stuff. So. <laughs> okay. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, four subtle clues that reveal a man's character. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard the phrase, they've got character? You know, that usually means that someone has charisma or a particularly strong personality. But is that really what character is all about? How do you judge a person's character? Not their personality, their charisma, or their charm, but their actual character? Our next guest today is Kent Sanders. He's the author of the article, Four Subtle Clues to Know a Man's Character, and he joins us now live from Missouri to talk to us about how to recognize the character in another. Kent, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. You bet. Honored to have you. And I love this article about uh, recognizing the, the subtle clues of a person's character. I mean, explain to us, just, I guess, define character for us, because so many people may think they know what it means. But from your perspective, what is character? Well, I think character is pretty simple to define, really, when you get down to brass tacks. I think that character is who you are when no one's looking, or I suppose when very few people are looking. You know, we can all put on a good face for other people. We can put on a good appearance, whether it's, you know, online or through blog posts or through media or whatever. But when it really comes down to when nobody's looking or when very few people are looking, it's really easy to be totally someone else. Hmm. I mean, really, because other than that, it's... I guess it's just personality. It's it's it could be politics. It could just be survival skills. Character is what you're doing when no one can benefit really from what you're doing but you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, character is just it's who you really are, who you really truly are on the inside, and mm. what you're really like. Why and why is it so important? I mean, I know religion teaches that. I know grandma taught that. Mom and dad taught that. But why? where does it matter today, in today's day and age? Well, I think religion, you know, and faith does play into it to an extent, but I think foundationally all of us know that character matters because character is the foundation of trust. And trust is really the foundation of, of all of society if you really just kind of get down to the nitty-gritty of it. Because without trust, you can't function in a relationship with someone, whether it's, you know, an, like a really high-level governmental type of thing, whether it's marriage, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with work or with any sort of community relationship, if you don't trust someone, fundamentally, you can't have a functioning relationship with that person. So Hmm. because I believe character is the foundation of trust, you've got to have character as a person in order to have really a functioning relationship with someone. Or at some level, if you don't have character, that relationship's going to break down. 
at some point. Yeah, I mean, it really, and the mere fact you've tied it to trust, I think, is that's the that's the bond, right? If I don't trust you, how do I communicate with you? If I don't trust oh, you, absolutely. how do I, you know, how do I partner with you? How do I build a coalition or a team with you? Exactly, exactly, and I think. Really, this is the reason why so much, so many things in society have broken down or are breaking down, because on so many levels, there's a fundamental lack of trust within organizations, institutions, governments. Um, and, you know, in many ways, uh, people of faith have broken the trust with people, leaders, yeah. you know, because of abu- abuse situations or other type of situations, right. moral failures. So I think this is something we see across the board in all of society, even in even in faith situations. Well, we we see, yeah, we see that the the millennials' belief, uh, the younger, you know, twenty four to whatever thirty four year old or eighteen to thirty four year old age generation, they believe in institutions far less than we used to, and even doctors, in faith leaders, in government, um, trust just isn't there. And in fact, it's interesting as we look at the political race. How low the trustworthiness is, or our trust uh, ability to trust somebody in the top leading candidates, we don't even trust. It is, it is, and you know, and part of that probably is due to over the last few decades in American politics, particularly, it's become so much more about appearance and sound bites and how a candidate looks and how they can, you know, how slick they can be in their marketing and production and all that stuff, rather than strictly who is this person really on the inside. Mm. I, I agree. And I think I see it so much in marriage, in family issues. Um, but what the, one of the things it seems like is we're using two different systems, right? So there's the trust system, the character-based system that seems like it's so essential, it's so critical, but then people can go out with a really strong personality and have great success even though they have no character. So Oh, that's a, yeah. So that's how do you choose true. how do you choose which you know, which master to follow, the character master or the get the quick results master? Well, I guess I would say I I would hopefully not have to choose. Hopefully you have someone who is a good leader who can communicate well, who who is a good organizer or has the skills to do whatever it is that they need to do, whether it's in some type of leadership role or maybe it's an artist or maybe it's a musician of some kind or governmental leader, whatever that person is, hopefully they have the skills to do what they need to do and they have the character. But if I had to pick, I think I would go with someone more on the character side. And the reason is because you can teach a person with character skills to a certain level, Yeah. but you really can't teach character to someone who doesn't have it or who doesn't want it. Yeah. It's like when I'm hiring somebody in a, in my company, I can spend a lot of time just looking at their competency, their list of attributes and abilities and their their education. But also – but it might be easier to just hire somebody with character and teach the skills. I heard a great quote once that said, we tend to hire people for their competency and we fire them for their lack of character. <laughs> that's very true. I think that's really true. I've not heard that before, but wow. Yeah. There's a lot of truth in that. But, it, it, but it, it's it's a little easier, I guess, to see everything else, right? To see, to see all of the other accolades, the other – you know, just the, the numbers – and um, the other successes. So character, it's a subtle thing. And I think that's why you put this article together is there are some subtle clues that help reveal a man's character. You wrote the article um, and you basically give us four different clues. 
many of them are about how we speak to other people. And um, the first clue you say of, of that reveals a man's character is how a person speaks to their wife. And you were referring to men and how men speak to their wife, but you could be talking about how a wife speaks to her husband, I'm assuming, right? Oh, of course. And I wrote this article on a, a site called The Good Men Project where I write, and I also am an editor. And so I naturally focus it toward men, but the principle applies either way, of course. So teach us about why about how character is revealed just in how we talk to our spouse. Well, we've all probably seen people in a you know a store or a restaurant or somewhere where there's a group of people, and one person has whether it's a man or a wife, uh, but I'm, of course I'm a guy, so I'm speaking from a guy's point of view, where where the person has said something critical to their spouse. Maybe it's kind of a biting comment, or I can recall a time when I was out having dinner with a friend, and um, his wife called, and he was visibly irritated that his wife was interrupting him in the middle of dinner. And uh, the way that he spoke to her was sort of this curt, uh, slightly irritable tone where you could tell he was kind of just patronizing her and wanting to get her off the phone. Hmm. And he hung up and had sort of this exasperated look on his face and like, oh, she's calling me for the, you know, 15th time today or whatever it was. And, and he may have had a reason to be irritated. I have no idea. But the fact of the matter was that in that moment, I thought, wow, if he's willing to kind of reveal this to me, just, you know, and we're good friends, just having dinner, I can only imagine what kind of things go on when it's just the two of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so many times if you see a little bit of conflict in public or disagreement or someone being irritated with the other person, I think that's usually only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, that, that's not to, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's not to say you should never have conflict. We all have conflict in relationships. That's a natural part of human relationships. The character, but, think, but it, it comes out subtly, like you're saying, in that conversation. And that's, that's, you're just saying that's, if it's the tip of the iceberg, that's just what you see. Deep, deep down, there's, there's probably other, you know, less subtle clues if you could get behind the curtain and see what's really going on. Oh, I think so, because. In my mind, a person who's willing to belittle their spouse in public, and by in public I mean just in front of anybody else, whether it's other family or uh, hopefully not in a, in a huge public setting or something, I think a person who's willing to disrespect or dishonor their most cherished relationship in life in front of others, that's, that's a major clue to that person's character. And in my mind, someone who's willing to do that to their spouse in public would do that to anybody. Hmm. So I don't have really much respect or trust in someone who would do that to their spouse uh, in public and humiliate them or embarrass them in that way. Well, and that spouse has to know, right, that they're being diminished. They're being – even if they don't know that he rolled his eyes and did all of these things on the phone, but she knows who her spouse is. So imagine how do you confront somebody that lacks character? I mean how how do you stay married to somebody – that lacks character. I noticed that in my own practice. Everybody wants to learn how to communicate and be a better communicator, except I spend three weeks out of a six-week course teaching people character before ever trying to teach them to communicate. Because communication without character is meaningless. Right. Well, and I believe it comes down to the question of how do you deal with the failures of your spouse, really? Um, If that's kind of the question behind the question, you know? Yeah. And I think everybody has to deal with that differently. I would certainly never presume to say this is how every person should deal with it because we all, you know, each marriage is unique and each relationship is unique. 
And each marriage has pain points, things that have happened in the past. Each marriage has different ways of communicating and relating and so forth. But I believe in general, you just have to decide what you're willing to put up with as a person. And so, but sometimes what we do, instead of putting up with too much, sometimes we put up with too little, I yeah. believe, you know, where we live with someone for so long that even the smallest infraction or the smallest, you know, thing really grates on our nerves and we just explode about that little, that little thing. I think the longer that you're married to someone or in a relationship with someone, you have to kind of decide what are the, the little things I'm willing to put up with that may not even be character traits. They're just idiosyncrasies or little crazy habits or whatever. Yeah. But then separating those from really character issues. And if someone is in a relationship where they have major character issues going on, you have to make a hard decision sometimes about what are you going to do? What do you, how are you going to respond to that? And oftentimes there's children involved. You bet. And that's my heart really goes out to anyone in that situation. And, and of all of the times to make sure you make the decision with character, it's that one, right? So, I mean, there are reasons to divorce people. There are reasons to end a relationship that's not healthy. And sometimes that takes immense character when everyone else around you is saying, oh, no way. Give him one more try. Give him one more shot. I mean, character is sometimes making the hard decision. Think of a like a football coach that has to make the call and then everybody second guesses the call. But none of them had the character to be in the moment to have to make the call in the first place. So we all right. have to make right. the call sometimes. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that we had a, my wife and I have a friend from college. We've known her for probably 25 years and her and her husband have a number of kids. And um, two or three months ago, we found out via Facebook that they were getting a divorce. And we come from a faith community. Um, we went to a Christian college and I used to actually be a pastor, work at a Christian college now. Hmm. And so a lot of the people who are sort of in our circle are church people. And it was really surprising to see the reactions of so many people that that knew this couple, and they were sort of not being negative about it, but kind of this surprise of, wow, I can't believe you're getting divorced. I thought you guys were so great, and I thought he was a great person and everything. And I remember my wife and I having this conversation about, you never really know what goes on in someone's marriage behind closed doors, and how so often we're quick to to make a judgment about someone, not really knowing what happens right. in their lives and what's gone on. And... Uh, and my feeling was you just have to trust that person that they're making the right decision because ultimately you don't really know what's gone on. Right. And, um, and I just had to trust that, hey, this friend, this mutual friend of ours prayed about it. You know, they sought wisdom. They were trying to do the right thing for them and but also for their kids. And, you, you know, you can't really judge someone based on a few things you see on social media. Mm-hmm. You, you don't really know the whole story there. So hopefully, you know, we all are like that where we're making good decisions about something um, when sometimes other people may not understand our decisions or be able to on any level. Well, and again, it goes back to it's our character too, right? So when we read the Facebook post, I've got to now exercise character and not react, not spread rumors, not gossip, not judge, assume the best. And um, if I need to go find out more, see if I can help. I mean, it's it's that that's what's interesting about this whole topic of character is the contagious 
effect of it um, where the more the more character I show, the more I facilitate your ability to show character as well. Um, interesting. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Kent Sanders from the website KentSanders.net. He wrote a wonderful article uh, titled Four Subtle Clues That Reveal a Man's Character. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back and uh, reveal three more clues for you. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about character. Do you have the character? We're defining character as who you are when no one else is looking. And on the phone with us is Kent Sanders calling us from Missouri. He has a website, KentSanders.net. He's a writer and uh, a musician, and he talks about um, a wonderful, a, a wonderful. Uh, tool set, I think, that helps reveal a man's character. Four clues to look for that shows you if if you possess character or not. And uh, he wrote this article originally for a men's magazine, um, but uh, it applies to both men and women. The first clue is how a man speaks to his wife is a pretty good indicator. It's a pretty good clue of, of his level of character. Uh, Kent, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. You bet. Love the topic, and uh, it's just great having somebody that's thought so much about it. The second clue you bring up is how a man speaks to his children. That's a yeah. sign of uh, of uh, character or not. Talk about that for us. What do you mean by that? Well, the reason I define that as a way that we reveal our character is because if there's any group of people in our lives where you know we're in a power relationship over them, and they basically need to do what we say, or, you know, that's kind of how we can look at parenting in a simplistic way. It's our kids. I mean, we can lose our temper with our kids. We can talk down to them. We can insult them. We can get angry with them. And they pretty much have to do what we say, at least when they're younger. I mean, they don't have to, but, you know, but they're dependent. They're dependent on us. And so, you know, there's sometimes the threat of, of punishment or taking a toy away or whatever else, or even abuse, you know, in some cases, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to kind of go to the extreme. So, you know, a, a major way that we reveal our character is how we speak to people who we're in a power relationship over. And I think our kids definitely fall into that category. And obviously, we don't want to abuse that privilege, of course. But I think if there's any group of people in our lives where it's easy to lose our temper, and it's easy to uh, to really break our character with them and to not have positive character and not be a good example. It's probably with our kids. Yeah, and because, too, that's where we're most afraid, right? I mean, those are the most important people in our lives and, and because we and we don't want them to fail. We don't want them to fall into problems. And so that's also probably where we're most vulnerable. Oh, it is. And, and so much of that reflects back on us. At least it's easy to look at that, to look at it that way where our kids, you know, their success or their failures or who they are is some kind of a reflection on us as parents. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we really snap at them. We lose our temper. We're impatient with them. We talk down to them because we, we want them so badly to, to be better, to not make mistakes. 
And in some cases, when our psychology gets a little bit messed up, we want our kids to somehow atone for our sins in life, you know, and to not make the mistakes that we made. And there's probably some psychology going on there that I don't fully understand, you know, but, but I know, I know that's, that's a dynamic definitely in our relationships with our kids at times. Well, and I guess that same thing would apply with anybody that really can't, doesn't have the power to hurt you. That could be a boss subordinate relationship. Um, It's, I guess it's how you treat the weaker among us. That is, is a really good indicator of your, of your heart. Oh, it is. And it really just comes down to, uh, I think character is mostly an issue of how do you use the power that you have, whether it's with an employee or a subordinate of some kind, whether it's with your kids or with, uh, you know, again, in the article, I talk about a couple of other groups of people as well. People who, who we have power over in some specific type of way. And, um, you know, when you have power, but you choose to use it for good, that's good character. Yeah. When you have power and you use it to harm others or to take advantage of others or to advance your own cause at their expense, that's bad character. Well, another example of it, and anybody that traveled over the weekend probably saw it, is is how – this was your third clue how – how a man speaks to people who are serving them. Like yes. at the airports, in your cab driver, all of these people that are – just you know, in the service industry, maybe, or the people you know that are that are taking care of you, that's a big indicator of our character as well, right? Oh, it is. In fact, this happened to us just three or four days ago. We were at a local restaurant, and it was actually um, it was New Year's Day. No, I'm sorry, it was New Year's Eve. That's what it was. We went out to a local restaurant, and um, we had this young girl who was our server, and uh, legitimately, she did a terrible job. And I, I don't want to mention the name of the restaurant because it's really not a reflection on that restaurant as a whole because we always have a good experience there. But this particular server was uh, was not good. She was not attentive. She just did kind of a bad job overall. And it would have been easy if we wanted to, you know, to speak to her manager and kind of make a scene about it and make a fuss and make her feel badly about it. But I didn't want to do that, even though some people would choose to go that route because, you know, the manager would listen. Maybe they would have gotten a free meal or something. But I didn't want to do that because I, I don't think that was the right way to handle it. And let's face it, we've all had a bad day at work where we haven't measured up, we haven't done well, we've we've messed up something for someone. And I hope that I would have the patience with someone that other people have shown me and that I want to have in my own life. And, that you know, that doesn't mean we tolerate mistakes all the time and that we let things slide and that we let a lack of excellence become sort of a habitual thing in our own lives and in the lives of other people that we lead. But I think there are times when when you go, okay, this person messed up. I'm not going to bring the hammer down on them as hard as I could just because I can. You know, what's what's the kind thing to do? What's the character thing to do in this situation? Yeah, we saw that. Um, we were at a restaurant and my wife was uh, – actually, we were picking up the order and somebody we knew from – one of the athletic teams that our children had played on, had, their their order was wrong, and he the person was yelling at the the person on the at the counter, um, oh, no. and and then he basically just said, "I'm just going to stand here, I'm going to stand here till I get my order." But the interesting thing is, he ended up standing there anyway, right? While she took care of everyone else, it seems like all he would have had to have done is just go stand there. I mean, right, he right. he could have done it anyway without the yelling and the scene. And what I guess he didn't realize is 
um, he got his order, but he got it at a pretty expensive cost of other people now not trusting him. Right, right. Even his kids. Yeah, and so many times we do that in public places because we think that no one's looking. And right. you know, even though our kids are there, sometimes we don't we don't see that as wow. I'm actually damaging my kids and giving them a bad example to follow. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are times whenever we do something in public where we think no one is there, but then we find out, hey, this friend was there, or this person from, you know, our church or our work was there, and then we're really embarrassed because we didn't think they saw what we did, but they actually did, <laughs> and that's not cool. Right. That doesn't really help us. So. You never know when someone's looking or when someone's going to see what you do, particularly with social media these days. Oh, yeah. In fact, this gets into your last clue, clue number four. Uh, another way to reveal a man's character is to see how he speaks to his enemies. Absolutely. Talk about that. What do you mean? Well, what we tend to do, and what I mean by enemies, by the way, is anyone who we have some sort of a conflict with. It doesn't necessarily mean you know, us against some other country you know, in the world, but someone who we're in conflict with. And the way that we speak to those people reveals a lot about us, because if we have conflict with someone, we're naturally irritated. We're, we're going to more tend to lash out at that person, whether it's verbally or in some passive-aggressive way. So the way that we hold our tongues, the way that we control our actions with that person who we're upset with or who we're having conflict with shows how we have self-restraint and self-discipline or whether we don't, I think. Yeah. No, absolutely. And again, who you are, there's a great quote that says, who you are, speak so loudly, I can't hear the word you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Because it gets in the way, right? Our our character could facilitate a better communication, a better outcome. It doesn't mean it's going to be a different outcome. You still, you know, um, for example, we, we talked earlier about divorce. We still may divorce. Uh, having character doesn't always ensure that it will save a marriage, for example, or a business deal, but right. the, but it does ensure that you you handle the finishing or the end or the collapse in a different way, so that you can at least walk away with integrity. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, we all fail with this sometimes, not necessarily in in the big things, hopefully, but we all fail character wise at times where. We say something we shouldn't have, or we're upset with someone, and, and we did something that maybe we wouldn't normally do when we're not upset. And right. in those moments, we have to, to go make it right. I know I've done that before, certainly, where I've fired off an angry email to someone or done something I shouldn't have. And then in that moment, you have to decide, am I going to be a person of character and go make it right and apologize, or am I going to just be full of pride and not deal with that and just say, well, they deserved it, or they'll just have to deal with it or whatever. I think that's that's a tough choice that we have to make. Are we going to apologize and make it right whenever we do bomb? So true. And are we going to address the conflict or are we just going to walk away? I mean, these are all choices, I guess, of our character. Um, as we wrap up, Kent, uh, what would you say if, – if I always ask for the one thing. Um, what would you say is the one thing that we could all focus on consistently that would have the greatest impact on our ability to grow our character? Well, I think there's a question that we can ask ourselves on a daily basis that really helps not just with character development, but with any decision. And that question is, how would I feel about this decision or this action or this word when I wake up tomorrow morning? Will I be glad that I did it or will I regret having done it? Whether it's an email, whether it's some type of, of act, act or action, 
no matter what it is, am I going to be happy that I did this tomorrow morning when I wake up? And if I will be happy, then, hey, let's go ahead and do it. If I'm going to regret this, even though I may feel like doing it now, then maybe I shouldn't do it. I should exercise a little bit more self-control so that I can wake up tomorrow morning being happy with the actions that I took that I took in the last 24 hours. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. I mean, again, and look to the bigger look to the bigger picture of this all. Well, we appreciate you, Kent Kent Sanders again um, from the website kentsanders.net. Great resources and tools there. A lot of wonderful free stuff as well that you can go uh, go follow and use to uh, improve your life. Interesting stuff, folks. Think about those questions. Your character. How are you doing? As you're thinking about New Year's, New Year's resolutions, maybe it might you know help you a little bit more to work on your character, maybe more than even your waistline. Uh, having some character might improve a lot of your other goals. Character, pretty basic, uh, basic objective. I think all of us should be trying to improve in our lives. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, yesterday we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day and were granted a day off, right, in his honor. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good day off. Who doesn't want more time to just watch Netflix and clean their house? Caitlin Thomas joins us, our producer, full-time student, and uh, she believes that if we were given more days off work and school, um, then... We'd probably feel better about ourselves, lives. We'd probably have more love, more unified politics. All of the above, right, probably. Kayla? Maybe the problem is, is we're just working too much. Really? You think that? Well, yes. Because <laughs> I mean, yesterday we had this national day off. I mean, most people had but, the day but off, did, right? Do, do people really, you know, do they do they pay attention to what the day was about? Well, no. I think some people do, but at the same time, like regardless of what you're celebrating, days off are good for you. I read on Psychology Today, they said that, um, oh, what is it? Here we go. Oh, if we push our brains too hard through too many hours of work, our brains will start to push back in a negative mm. way. Ideas that once flowed easily will dry up and tasks that you should be able to perform quickly become excruciatingly difficult. Like finding my car. So if you're like me at this point... You know, you feel tempted to scold yourself to buckle down and work harder, but that's completely counterproductive. I saw you at your desk, and you were, like, slapping your face, saying, come on, Caitlin! Work harder, right, but it's completely counterproductive, yeah. because sometimes you just need to give yourself and your brain some rest. So days off can actually be beneficial. I mean, Oh, in, totally. And I think we need more days off. Like, for me, this semester, I think the Martin Luther King Jr. Day and President's Day are the only days I get off the whole semester. But the, mm. And then weekends, right? Yeah, but you're still doing homework all weekend. They pound you with enough work to do that's not really like you. And then you go to you have to work at real jobs. And I know you, but you understand that there will be a day that it, you don't get days off. It's right, and Monday I'm not saying Friday. take it easy. I'm okay with working hard, but <sighs> I think I, agree, I think though. I I think sometimes we deserve a few more three day weekends. Yeah, I think you ought to have one a month. I think I think that's doable. One three day weekend a month. A month. That's all it is. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for weeks off. Obviously, we need to work hard. We can't stop production as right. a nation. But I think yeah. So I think Let's we make should it happen. We should talk about some you know other people that don't have holidays, but but m- maybe could use one, and then we could all get more days off. Okay. I've got two. 
George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, but if every president... That's why we have President's Day. If we gave every president their day... No, just those two. Just those two. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm good. That's all I want. So you want two days instead of one president's it used day. To, I, if I remember correctly, it used to be that we did get two days. One so for just, each of their birthdays. You want to spread it out because then we get more days off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking, and like, I'm a writer. I'm studying to become a writer. So what about authors? Nobody, like Mark Twain, William Shakespeare. Nobody gives, like, I want a day off for them. An author's day. An author's day. But what about a day off for a business executive? Like Like who? Henry Ford. Oh. For innovation day. I'll t- and I I'll take that. And we have a day for executives to go innovate. That I love What about it. Mother Teresa? Day? That's what I was thinking about. A day of peace. A day of a peace. A day to reflect. A day for what the about, peacemaker. What about Sir John Harrington? You know, he's not American, but he invented the first known flush toilet in 1596. I think oh, that should be celebrated. Wow. Where would we be without him? Like, just because of what he did, like, I really just want a day off. I think we need <laughs> a day off for a, a female day off. But I don't know what we call it. Like, and instead I don't know. of ladies' night out, like, it's just yeah. ladies' day off? Yeah, instead of bunko night. It's, oh, hey, I like that. I like bunko. Sorry, didn't mean to offend. But, like, in, so a day just to celebrate women's accomplishments in the United States. Now but, you're talking. But then I don't know if there's one universal female. Right, there's so many. Well, and it's kind Susan of like B. Anthony with Martin, kind of day. Martin Luther King, right? He's not the only person that influenced right. the civil rights movement, but he was a big part of it. And so I think when we Rosa celebrate, Parks. right, but we're celebrating all of those people, like you're yeah. kind of combining all of that work into one so day. So we need a female day. Right. Like, for example, yesterday on my day off, I went and saw um, that Hidden Figures movie. Mm-hmm. And it, yes. it, 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 dealt, it had Martin Luther King, it had a lot of people, but it also had some really awesome women. So we call it you need a really classy, civil rights day. So we kind of have Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That's civil That's rights. That's like civil day. rights. Yeah. We yeah. need a female like a suffragette mm, day. Maybe, yeah, something like that. Ooh, I like it. I like the way you think. See, yeah. and then we can all all take a day off. Not just women, but everybody gets a day off. Yeah. Meryl Streep Day. Okay. She played a suffragette in a movie. <laughs> But I don't know that we need a day for a Hollywood actress. Yeah, they have enough. I mean, we have Kardashians every day. That's true. What about Gandhi Day? I was thinking Gandhi too, but he's not. And then we just fast that whole day. I think Uh, I don't want to fast on my day. But we we could kind of maybe make Gandhi and Mother Teresa the Peace Day. Like yeah, Day of Peace. Day of Peace. We probably and there is an International Day of Peace, but we don't celebrate it. We don't get get time off. off. I want time off. I think I really do. I think we got to push for one three-day weekend a month. a month. I think that you would see an increase in productivity. And that's all these articles said is if you if you give people something to look forward to like that, they'll actually work harder and productivity would actually be increased. How see? about how about like a day of rest? And not, you know, once a month, but once a week. How Just about a day a of one rest? One day. I mean, one day, a day <laughs> of rest. <laughs> Oh my god. Sabbath day. Let's call it the Sabbath. Should we go with Sunday? Let's go with Sunday. Okay. <laughs> what about uh Matt Townsend? Do you think uh, Jeff, do you think he should have a day? I don't want a day. He frequently takes Can we days call it off. marriage counseling day or How marriage about a day therapy for love? Day? Oh, a love day. Valentine's Day. Should be a national yeah, but we holiday. Yeah, we don't get that day off. Should be should be. He's always taking days off, but I still have to come into work when that happens. Yes, so do I. You have to be my voice. 
My voice. Mm. Well, that's a great idea. Everybody out there be thinking. Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show if you yeah. have any good ideas. And we'll we'll use all of our leverage to get it up to our bosses. All see of if the they power can, that we have. See if they can take it to the big guy. Hey, we'll take a break. We'll be back. Stick with us. More fun up next. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy days to you. It is uh, Tuesday. Again, because of the holiday, you are one day closer to the middle of the week. Thank you, Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> Thank you for uh, providing us with a break on Monday. And uh, we got a great show for you. We will be talking today about technology. Does technology make you healthier? I mean, it should be, right? You don't have to walk as much. I would argue no, because yeah. I feel like I can't watch an episode of something on Netflix unless I'm eating something. Really? Yeah. I've been working out during those my watching because I feel less guilty. Are you addicted to it? To what? Exercising? No. Oh. Not at all. Okay. I am addicted to Netflix. But that's why I think, hey, it's a good addiction because it allows me to exercise. But technology, is it making us healthier? We'll find out from Dr. Ron Hager. You know what? It may not be the case. There are worse things to be addicted to. Really? Great point. Yeah. I mean, you could look at it that way. Drugs. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, just, just, it's just Netflix. I mean, even with Netflix. NFL football. With Netflix, yeah. you will eventually finish the series, right? And then you'll have to wait. Well, then you wait for something else. Right. And then something else. That's the problem. Then there's always the next thing. I did uh, read something over the weekend. Uh, we'll probably try to explore further for the show, but it was something about no matter what you do, watching TV is always a waste of time. Hmm. Well, because like research instantly, like your brain turns to mush. Oh, really? Just kind of because you're if you're reading books that challenge you, like sci- books on science, books on you know, research history, things that are difficult, words you don't normally read on an everyday basis to challenge your brain, your brain goes into sort of like just cruise control. Yeah. So you read that fun novel. Even though you're reading, it's not challenging you. You're just cruising right through. Yeah. You need to, I guess you need to be applying it and challenged by your new knowledge. And then they said even if you watch, say, difficult TV – like I, I always think Nova on Nova, PBS yeah. is difficult TV. Uh-huh. Even if you watch something like that, it's still just TV. It's yeah. not challenging your brain. Right. You instead need to go build something. People are like, oh, did, did you see those documentaries over the weekend? Like, That's not helping either. <sighs> you're learning random things, but you're not challenging yourself and developing more. So TV is almost always a waste of time. Unless, of course, if- they're announcing where to go to the bomb shelter. Okay, yeah. Public. Then not a waste of time. Public awareness, that's good. Yeah, because yeah, you'll need to know that. Run. <laughs> Wait, are, are you anticipating something? No, I'm just saying. Oh, okay. There's that one in Some one millionth opportunity where television does not shrink your brain. Right. It actually keeps it 
Well, they, yeah. Encased in the skull. I think they're looking at the hours on end. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And my mom used to tell me, my brains turn into mush. Yeah, so mom was right. Mom was totally right. Yeah. Man, mom. I think, but not necessarily, it's already kind of mush. No, oh, for sure. But it's just, you're not developing you any need, new You need to be neurons. tested. And we say that on the show. You got to be pushed all the time. Yeah. Well, uh, um, we, we're going to talk to Ron about technology. We will also talk to our good brother in at BYU Sports Nation. Right. I, I've got uh, some questions about Jimmer Fredette. They may have some answers. Apparently, he's becoming a god a, in China. A, a deity of some kind. Like they're revering him as this god. He's, I think, one of the. I think he's the top scorer in the league. Yeah, he's on fuego. That's so Chinese for on fire. He's got his own shoe. Does he? Yeah, some random. I heard he has two company. of them. There's, well, there's two. He's got a shoe contract. That's great. So I've got my own shoes. Yeah, but yeah, two. I didn't buy them. So uh, we'll talk to those guys about that. Also, a hero of the day, of course, and we're celebrating Betty White's 95th birthday. You're not celebrating it? Yeah. Why? Birthdays. There is, I mean, there was the petition someone was trying to do to save Betty White from the year-end cataclysm that was happening with our oh, precious like celebrities dying. Keep her dying. away from everybody. Keep her yeah. healthy. Keep and her healthy. Oxygen save Betty White. 95 years old today. James Earl Jones, 85. Hmm. That's amazing. That's how he's staying alive. You can That's hear it right there. You hear every year he's lived. He's got his prosthetic lung. <laughs> and Jim Carrey, 55 years young today. Jim Carrey. Oh, James Earl Jones still breathing. So would you rather, if you, had, if you could be one of those stars, hmm. would you rather be Betty White at 95 or Jim Carrey at 55? He's out of control. Right. And there there could be some argument that because of things that Jim Carrey's done, he might be the same age, actually, as Betty White. You don't know. Ah, sure. <laughs> the same could be, or yeah, might be able to be said of Betty White, too. Who knows? You never know. You never know. And we're not, yeah, we won't, we're not saying anything. Just, it's Hollywood. <laughs> Obviously, James Earl Jones has lived a hard life. Yes, he's on that. Can barely breathe. Respirator. Uh, all that fun. But first... To the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. We've talked about this a little bit, but worth revisiting. Just three days left until Donald Trump takes the oath of office. The president-elect's favorability ratings remains, as I say, stubbornly, stubbornly and historically low. A new Gallup poll finds a Trump with a 40% favorable rating and roughly half of what Obama's 78% rating leading up to his 2009 inauguration. Tr- could you imagine that, 78%? No way. There's That's a lot amazing. of people that didn't vote for him that were like, yeah. yeah. That's good. Let's do this. Yeah, making history. Uh, it goes on. Trump currently holds the distinction of being the only incumbent, uh, incoming president of the most recent four whose unfavorable score is higher than his favorable score. Really? Yeah. 55% of the respondents currently have an unfavorable view of Trump compared to just 18% of Obama in 2009. But that's not all bad. Or it's not all bad reports, uh, Gallup, that Trump's favorability rating is at least slightly higher than it was during the presidential campaign. So he's gained a little bit. (laughs) Good. Uh, People are learning to accept him. Right. 
because he's at 55 and during the election he was at 38. So, I mean, he's 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 gone up. 82 percent of Republicans say that they're in Trump's corner, but that that that's notably lower than George W. Bush. He had 97 percent amongst Republicans back in 2001. Oh, wow. Amazing. So pretty big. President Obama yeah. will leave the White House with a 58 percent favorability rating. A new poll finds um, roughly half of more than half of Americans view his pre- this president as being favorable. Which is interesting if you hmm. listen to people. Obama reaches his peak favorability rating 78% before his own inauguration, and he averaged 53% over the two-year term. Really? So he was over 50 for the whole time. Yeah. Speaking Tuesday at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Chinese mm. President Xi Jinping warned the U.S. that engaging in a global trade war will do more harm than good. No one will emerge as a winner in a trade war, the Chinese president said. We must remain committed to developing free trade and investment, promoting liberalization and facilitation through opening up and saying no to protectionism. The president uh, never actually mentioned Donald Trump by name, but seemingly called out the incoming U.S. president for his repeated overtures to anti-globalization policies such as tariffs and import restrictions. Hmm. And uh, I believe Trump's spokesperson responded, and now we have a back and forth with the president of China over trade. Yeah. Yay. All right. And, oh. and his outgoing, I think, intelligence officer was saying, "There's no reason. They're not a. The, China's not a. Uh, what are they? They're not an enemy to the United States, and there's no right. reason reason they need to be. Yeah. Don't just, make them one. Don't make them an enemy. Yeah. Just, we're just going to continue to poke them. We'll see what happens. Yeah. It might just be posturing. Right. You don't want to come in and and feel like there's some sort of opportunity to take advantage of something. But at the same time, it's like you can go too far with that, too. Finally, if you like to fill your veins with the blood of young people, you need only to drain your bank account of $8,000. Oh, really? So if you want to have a... A, a young, youthful look. Yes. You just got to pay eight grand. That, uh, so young blood is now joining the ever-growing ranks of quote cures for people that people are paying to combat age-related diseases and even aging itself. The California-based startup Ambrosia is trying to conduct a clinical trial testing the effects of blood from younger people, ages sixteen to twenty-five, in older bodies, and hopes to convince six hundred people to pay eight thousand dollars a piece for a single liter, single one point five liter transfusion of plasma, reports Business Insider. So far, thirty people have had transfusions. Uh, the founder says, I'm really happy with the results that we're seeing. The claims of rejuvenation are scoffed at by scientists who say that the study is too poorly designed to offer real results, while others call the pay-to-participate aspect a scam. Well, yeah. Mm. We'll have to ask our good doctor about that, our evangelist of health. It, because wor- it works for Dracula, except he's, he's not really – Didn't it work the, for Michael Jackson? Did he do that? I don't know. Dracula is not really – he doesn't really discriminate. He just kind of takes any. They're looking at That's specific right. age groups. Well, here, and, so. the, and that wicked queen that was always chasing – Snow White. Snow White. Right. little precious. Right. Well, it's not – That was Lord of the Rings. Different but, movie there, but – Oh, yeah. yeah. You're right. <laughs> These are all true facts that we've seen. That's scary. Yeah. So now there's a startup. If you want $8,000, you can, you know, gain your youth allegedly. Now these older people, they just want your blood. Yeah. Watch out for them old people. There you go. Come here, son. Hey, grandson, come see grandpa. (laughs) Grandpa just wants to put a little IV in you. Let me tie this uh, rubber band (laughs) around your arm. Have you ever played the drain the blood out of your body game, Jimmy? Wow. (laughs) 
Dark. That's a dark grandpa. Yeah. I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, not good. There's got to be better ways for health. In fact, I'm pretty sure working out might help more. Probably. Maybe eating better food. Yeah. Yeah. Better me. food choices. Mm-hmm. Like better tasting food? Mm, not necessarily. Well, if you want your blood to taste good. Yeah, if you want it nice and sweet. Man, your blood is sweet. <laughs> and good for you. Um <laughs> Crazy, crazy. Okay, so an Illinois man gets Mm. 22 years in prison for stealing a remote, a TV remote. Really? Can you believe that? Was it it one of them um, Harmony remotes? Have you seen those? No, are they the really nice ones? That's what you need to get. You were complaining about having your Apple TV plus three remote. It's one remote, does it all, has a little digital touchscreen on it. Sounds expensive. It is. But that's why, I, I mean, if it's an expensive remote, it can't just be one that came with a TV and you went to jail for it. That'd Listen be ridiculous. He stole, apparently, he was found guilty of stealing a television remote from an apartment complex common area. Hmm. And has now been sentenced to 22 years in prison. Eric Bramwell, in August of 2015, took the Universal remote from an apartment building but dropped a glove before he left the complex. Did mm. it fit? Must have quit, was it right? A, was it was a bloody glove, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I had... Uh, a DNA sample from the glove uh, matched Bramwell's DNA logged in the state's convicted felon database. The 35-year-old was found guilty of theft in November earlier this week and was sentenced to 22 years in jail. He must serve at least half of his sentence before becoming eligible for parole. Wow. That's crazy. See, these are those mandatory sentencing things. Yeah, yeah. That's a problem. Was it a universal remote or just... Yeah, I mean, I think if it just had been a remote for like a TV, yeah. maybe five to ten years. Okay, okay. But you go for the universal remote, right? you get a universal sentence. Yeah. That's one year for every second of inconvenience that the watcher had to go through. Yeah. A lot of it, I guess, is because of his criminal history. Mm. And obviously, left his glove at the scene. Yeah. Dumb criminal. So he was either taunting the police, you can't catch me, neener, neener, or just made a mistake. Did he have to try it on, the glove? Yeah. And they did say the famous, if you if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That's why you have to get the what the rubber glove underneath. Yeah. And they did that. They actually had him put six on and it still fit perfect. Oh, wow. Yeah. Busted. Fit like yeah. a glove. But if, if you think it's excessive, it could have been 30 years, but the judge reduced the sentence. Hmm. Just to 22 years. Oh, it was good. But one thing that will be neat, if you are, if you share like a cell block with him, the guy knows how to work remotes. Yeah. So. Apparently. (laughs) I have a feeling there will be fights over that. Okay, we'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, Dr. Ron Hager, our um, health evangelist, is joining us. He'll be walking us through technology and health. You know, if it's technologically driven, it's got to be healthier for you, right? We'll see. I have some doubts. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to our uh, church meeting with the great evangelist, of health, Dr. Ron Hager. Ron is a an associate professor of exercise sciences in, co- in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. He is the chronic disease preventer. It's good to be here, man. <laughs> I, I'm in I'm in church again. Wow, doesn't this feel great? 
Yeah, it does. We I, used to have a we we used to have a bigger budget, so we had a choir and yeah. they were beautifully singing. But yeah, they took that budget away from us. Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Church, we, we, church or no church, we're glad you're here too. Because um, you would assume the way everybody like I have this Apple Watch and yeah. it makes me so much healthier. <laughs> exactly, because it tells me how many calories, how many steps I've taken. It's incredible. Yeah, and but and then I used to think I could just move my wrist and it would make it count stuff like, but it doesn't. It's it it's it's so advanced. Yeah. It can tell when you're being deceitful. Does technology make us healthier? You know that that's a great question. The reason I, I guess I came in to talk about this today. I, we just finished the first week of a new semester. Yeah, and I've got uh, for the first time ever I've got two online classes this Do you semester. Really? And yeah, probably. Um, let me think here. Probably, almost probably about three hundred and fifty students enrolled in wow. those two classes. Is it easier to teach online? Well, seems like that, technology. That, that's kind of what I would have thought. Yeah. Except for the first week of school, I, I don't. Now I'm not so much saying that, but but I guess I you know I, it just got me thinking. You know, does does technology enhance learning? Does technology enhance Whatever, and after last week, the answer to me is kind of you know, no, it's not about the technology. And, and you still have to eat food, and you and, still have to eat the right food. And, and it's you... more conducive to some than others. Yeah, right. True. Like you True. have you have an Apple Watch, and yeah. you say you know you actually use that information, and it actually works really well in my life because um, it because uh, I a lot of times can't be have my phone with me. Okay, but yeah. I need it near. So if it's three offices away, mm-hmm. it'll still remind me. It'll tell me yeah. when my next appointment so there, is. So there are some advantages, some efficiencies that can come from technology. Um, I I heard somebody say uh, not too long ago that they that last year that they said they spent about four hundred bucks at a at a like a a, a, a gym. Yeah, and they said, but they didn't lose a single pound. <laughs> then they realized they actually had to go there. Oh yeah. Yeah, so you can't. You can't. It, so it's not just about spending the money. And, and technology, in and of itself, doesn't make you healthy. It, at least that's kind of the conclusion I've come to. Just, just like it, it, that. That's not what makes you learn. No. Like, like if you're taking an online class. I read a ton of stuff about health. Yeah. Never. I mean, I learn a lot. <laughs> sure. Now I just know more what I should be doing okay. and yeah. I'm doing wrong. Yeah. So I guess the I guess the idea is. Um, that you have to ask yourself some questions, you know, because I know a lot of people that spend money on technology for health, mm-hmm. but yet no no difference occurs. And then there are others, a difference does occur. So I guess you have to, first of all, be sort of the right personality or the right kind of person for that kind of thing. Now, I like to play tennis. I, I yeah. play a lot of tennis. And you're good at it. And, and you know, back in the day... The technology was a wooden racket. Yeah, those little tiny heads. Yeah, yeah. hold a so, ball, ball game now. So why why don't people play with wooden rackets anymore? I mean, I'll admit I I break a wooden racket out once in a while because it's kind of fun, a little bit of nostalgia. You know, hey, I wonder, you know, if I can. Do you have hit. the same game? No, no. So it actually changes your game. Yeah. a little bit. In fact, uh, I loaned a wooden racket because I've got a few of them to. Uh, somebody from the men's tennis team here at BYU, and he broke it. He broke it. N- not broke the strings. He broke the broke the, the racket. Handle. Yeah, because 
the game has changed. Yeah, it's not as so, power. Yeah, so so there are, you know, I guess ways that technology makes things better, makes things faster, makes things stronger, and can make you more healthy. We are living longer, right? As technology has gone on, so we are living longer and you, better lives. You would think. You would think. Now, let me just I, – I, I brought an article in today. It was just published uh, not too many months ago um, in June of 2016. So it's fairly new. It's just a little two-page review uh, written by a, a physician named uh, David Ludwig. And uh, he works at a hospital but also does a lot of research and writing, especially on uh, childhood obesity. And the title of his article is Lifespan Weighed Down by Diet. Hmm. Okay, so now you think about the foods you eat. Is technology involved in that? Oh, yeah. And it certainly is. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have never had more technology associated with our food supply at any time in history. Uh, so he talks about that very thing. So true. Related to longevity. He said, he said the data from the latest CDC report, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, suggest that a tipping point has been reached beyond which technological advances may no longer compensate. Hmm. So he talks about how, um, you know, that, that our lifespan since the late middle to late 1800s has very systematically, if not dramatically, increased. Um, do you know what the lifespan was in 1850 for no. men and women? For I mean, I would have been dead. In, 19, in 1850. In 1850. Probably 50 years old. Yeah, 38. For 38 for men. Are you kidding? That was the average lifespan for men. For women, it was 40. That is young. Yeah, I would have been dead a long yeah, time I ago. Yeah, I would be dead too. Yeah. So in 1980, it had almost doubled. Men, 71 years. Women, 78 years. And, and it's even gone up more uh, since then. But that trend since the 1970s has actually uh, began to slow down. So the upward trend is We've still, kind of, still kind of going up, but it's starting to uh, level off. And, uh, and well, how, how much of that is – I used – I mean we used to have to get your water by leaving your house, carrying a bucket, <laughs> yeah. walking a mile to the river and bringing it back. Yeah. Now you just – And for some people that was – Uphill both ways yeah, and right. in the snow. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you used to work for your resources. Yeah. Now they just are delivered. They're well, and, and again, I mean, are, are you grateful that you don't have to get up in the morning and oh, walk a mile to yeah. bring a bucket of water back to your house? Yeah. And, I mean, and are you and glad heat up for that? the house with a, yeah. Yet, yet, when you go to your kitchen sink or your bathroom sink, you flip that little knob and water comes out. And it's just a way of life. I mean, you you pretty much take it for granted. Now, right. there are. I'm sure there are – I know there are still places in the world where, you know, they don't have that luxury or that privilege. But, you know, that that's technology. And does it come at a cost? Yeah, because you don't exercise or, or more sedentary. Yeah. Maybe it has to do with that, the amount of physical activity. Or, you know, with the technology in food manufacturing, production, distribution, shelf life, everything, is there a consequence – to that technology as opposed to eating more of the whole foods, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. Mm, totally. you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, so uh, Dr. Ludwig talks in this article, he, uh, he talks about the, you know, the rapidly increasing lifespan, uh, you know, which was from the, from the 1800s to today, which you know, is considered you know, a, a public health triumph. I mean, obviously, people want to live as long as they can and be as healthy as they can. I mean, it's no, I mean if, you, if you were living 
you know, with disability and disease, you know, maybe maybe you wouldn't want to live a long time. Um, but, you know, things like improved sanitation and even advances in medicine, you know, uh, technology and medicine. And I mean uh, medical procedures, like even surgical procedures, oh. but and also, you know, pharmacology. The my, well, my father-in-law was a cardiologist and things that they were doing in the 70s here and 80s in the United States, they weren't doing in the – in 2010 in Samoa. Yeah. So he would see people dying in Samoa when he was on a mission there for things that were so easily fixable here. Right. Right. Technology, I mean it, it can save. Yeah, it it can, but and it has a cost. But is that the, so so back to that idea of a tipping point, it seems that we've been getting more out of control from a lifestyle perspective and technology has been compensating for that over the years, but now we may be at this tipping point where yeah. the technology can't outpace the burden of okay. an unhealthy lifestyle. So now, ooh, interesting. That'll change the game then, apparently. Yeah, apparently. So, so data from the first nine months of 2015, uh, mortality data show that uh, that uh, death rates have actually increased. Really? Um, yeah, compared to that same time period the year before. And the primary causes of these increased death rates are related to obesity. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so the obesity thing is catching up. Well, and again, it seems like a solution would be technology. Yeah. Change what we're putting into these things. Yeah. Change the ingredients. Right. So the death rates, which traditionally have come down for things like heart disease, diabetes, stroke, Mm-hmm. Uh, are actually on the upswing in the last couple of years. Well, yeah. What happens when your mortality rate is dropping now? That is scary. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's kind of interesting as he talks about this. Uh, you know, he and, and he he points out, for example, uh, you know that between 1961 and 1983, life expectancy increased in a relatively consistent fashion throughout the United States. Um. And no county, so he's talking about counties, uh, had a significant decline. <clears throat> but when you start looking at different demographics across the United States, he said between 83 and 99, life expectancy actually decreased significantly for men in 11 counties and in women for 180 counties. Wow. And of particular concern, counties that showed relative or absolute declines in life expectancy corresponded closely to the most severely affected counties by the obesity epidemic. Interesting. So the counties in the country that have the highest obesity rates are actually showing that death rates from obesity-related chronic conditions like heart disease and stroke and diabetes is going up. And yet technology booming. But te- yeah, so if if technology's all this great, then uh, you know, if it's if it's the answer, then why are we facing these problems? It might, yeah. yeah. Well, then maybe we're looking at the wrong technology. Let's take a break okay. and come back more with the health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, um, again, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU. Stick with us, folks. We're going to give you some solutions, some tools of how you could use technology to live a healthier life, reverse some of those uh, of the latest trends of obesity. Stick with us. We'll be back.
Welcome back, friends. Love the music selection. Nothing says, let's get healthy more than these tunes. Um, And joining us, Dr. Ron Hager, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. Today he's talking about technology, you know, makes our life so great, except we've now reached a point where actually mortality rates are dropping and we're 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 more likely to die younger actually mortality rates are, are going, going up. up yeah we're more likely to to die younger yeah even though we have a phone that makes it so we never need to leave our couch yeah it seems counterproductive yeah and for at least and for more than a century life expectancy has steadily gone up and some experts are saying that by by the mid 21st century by you know 2050 uh, we will be we could be seen you know, widespread decline in life expectancy. Oh, I mean, we're crazy. already seeing it in certain, you know, subpopulations, right. and with and in certain disease states. Uh, but but as far as a, you know, a national life expectancy going down after more than a century of increase, and this is really because obesity is going up. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And ob- what we're eating, our food, it's not healthier. Yeah, and and it, obviously it's more than that. Uh, but that's kind of the focus, I think. Yeah. And, you know, we've gone for so long without asking ourselves the hard questions. Uh, you know, is this right or wrong? Is it good or bad? Is it going to be helpful or hurtful? Uh, it's always just been, hey, if it's if it's a technological advancement, it must be good. must be good. Yeah, but that's just not – Yeah, no. That's not the case I mean, we built a bomb that could kill millions of people. That's advancement, I guess. But is it is it the right thing? And this gets into the same thing. I mean, if we could make food that makes you addicted so you want more and more and more of it, and I own a business that wants to sell more and more and more, yeah. should I addict you? That's a great question. You know, it's a, it's a moral, ethical thing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is just my opinion, but um, technology for the sake of technology seems to be – the trend now, with, with even without regard for the financial costs. Right. If it can be done, it must be done. Do it. Yeah, and and that and that I think becomes problematic because ethics or morals are kind of thrown out the window. Right. You know, and at some point, I mean, of course, you can always you know take it right back to the individual, and you say, well, you still have a choice. You know, it's your choice what you eat, or it's your choice what you do. And there's no question that that's true. Um, but what, what's the role of the government, for example? I mean, I'm not necessarily advocating for more government regulation. But if they're going to regulate things, why not regulate things outside of special interest? Right. You know, why not regulate things that are really about, for example, the health of the individual? Yeah. And, and I don't think enough of that goes on. In fact, some of the some of the recommendations that Ludwig gives in his article, uh, you know, he talks about, you know, doing doing research, the value of research. Uh, and it's not like we have a shortage of research. We have more research on health now than we've ever had in history. Right. And now we're but we're facing a decrease in life yeah. expectancy. So it's not about more research, but maybe maybe more high quality independent research. He points out in his article that uh in in uh in a, in a recent in, in the recent past, the NIH National Institutes of Health, which funds a lot of research, uh, funded nine hundred million dollars in uh, obesity research, and that's uh, some say that's about the same amount that it takes to bring one pharmaceutical drug to market. Wow! 
Okay, so uh, it's. It, I mean, it's kind of sad to say, but it to a large extent, this is about the money. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know, it is about the money. Follow the money. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe doing some some research. You know, some high quality independent research that you know is outside of you know the special interests um, and the lobbies and so forth. Uh, national policies are needed to shift away from low quality commodities. So he's talking about the foods we eat, like corn and wheat. Yeah. And instead, encourage production of high quality proteins, fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, and other whole foods. Um, and maybe even subsidize those things. I mean, corn and wheat and those other things are being subsidized, but they're causing problems. So, uh, you know, and, and anything to excess is probably going to be right. a, an issue. Um, so moderation is going to be a key. Um, maybe even some sensible reforms involving taxes. And as I said, some subsidies and uh, and some funding for national nutrition programs. Uh, you know, the, the five-a-day program, many people have heard of that. It's more popular in some states than others. Five-a-day is a pu- kind of a public health campaign started some years ago to encourage Americans to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And <clears throat> mo- most states spend, uh, you know, during the peak of that campaign, <clears throat> spent less than a million dollars hmm. on that campaign statewide. Right. And yet the food manufacturing and advertising industry is you know hundreds of billions of dollars so how do you how do you counteract you know uh, a four billion dollar advertising campaign with a one million dollar advertising campaign so maybe some regulations you know could be considered there um what what about greater investment in schools uh you know uh serving serving higher quality meals to children i mean i gotta i gotta tell you i've I mean, I've watched my kids grow up. I've spent time with them. I mean, one of the one of the fun things to do as a parent, I guess, you know, if your kids think you're cool, is uh, you know, come to school and eat lunch with them. Right. So some of my kids were kind of into that, and some were like, "What? Do you're, not come you're near not me. coming to, to my school and eat lunch with yeah. me." Yeah. Uh, but I but I've seen what what kids eat in schools, and I've seen what they throw away, and most of what they throw away is the stuff they should be eating, and most of what they eat is the stuff they should be throwing away. Yeah. So definitely, some some things could be done there, uh, and, and maybe and maybe education and regular physical education, maybe uh, you know nutrition education and regular physical education that that help students, especially young children, understand that you know this is a lifestyle. My my wife teaches physical education in school, and she works three days a week. Yeah, and so those kids aren't getting PE three days a week. And even after school programs, right? But there, there's all kinds of. They should, I mean, programs. recess was recess, and yeah. they're cutting on that. They're cutting on a lot of things. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, and then there's also this idea of predatory advertising. I mean, children are vulnerable mm-hmm. in in many respects, uh, in research and in many uh, arenas. Uh, children are considered a vulnerable population, and you can't just do anything you want. Yet. And, and to and to be fair, you know, there's tobacco regulations regarding, you know, marketing to certain age groups and stuff like that. But when it comes to food, oh, even in their school, the the, the sponsored by yeah, whatever, yeah, on Channel One or whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, yeah. So it's it, it's a problem, and you know, the First Amendment, you know, does not, I I believe, protect the right of food companies. To market unhealthy products to kids, to kids. I guess they just have to be deemed unhealthy. You know, it's a right. treat, right? 
It's yeah. just a treat. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, well, they need to be as unhealthy as, as a cigarette. What would you say? We got about thirty seconds. What should we do to make sure we use technology healthy in a healthy way? Well, first, first, I think is just to ask the hard questions. You know, just say, is this good for me or bad for me? And of course, you have to be honest. I mean, the drive-up window was an invention <laughs> at fast food restaurants and and even convenience stores now. But you know, ask yourself: is that is that good for me or bad for yeah. me? I mean, what's what was wrong with the old way of parking and getting out of your car to go into a restaurant that you probably shouldn't be going into anyway? <laughs> but at least you're doing a little something, right? So, so true. So, so I guess, Matt, what I would say is, uh, be be critical. You know, be a critical. Uh, uh, person in terms of trying to make a judgment. Just because it's in, available in the supermarket doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. And doesn't mean it should be in your house. No. In no, your fridge. Not at all. So you have, to, you have to ask yourself, is it right or wrong? Is it good or bad? Is it making me more healthy or less healthy? Uh, and, and, you know, we don't all need to go back to the Stone Age. No. You know, I'd have to haul water a mile. Uh, but you have to realize that when technology displaces certain things that were keeping you healthy, it can only go so far yeah. before, and you're at that point. before you reach this tipping point. Yeah, now you're going to start skidding backwards, losing losing your grip. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Ron Hager is his name. He's with us every couple of weeks. Again, he's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU. Come on, folks. Lead your lives. Let's do it. Stick with us. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let's uh, throw it down now to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Hello, gentlemen. How many times have we Uh, said to you and your listeners, Matt Townsend, that the key to happiness is managing expectations, right? 17 times, according Mm. to our count. Are we up to that count? Wow. Yes, you guys are. That's how good you are. 17 plus. 17 plus times. Hey, um, did you guys watch the games yesterday? Um, which games? No, not I mean Sunday. <laughs> the football games. I'm like, the yeah, championship I games. I Iowa State uh, the end of that college basketball game last <laughs> night. Did you watch that? I did, and I explained to my five-year-old everything that goes in the little score bar underneath. Oh. Like, down to the details, the records, rankings. Wow. All that stuff. And so, yeah, he's pretty intuitive on that stuff now. You ought, to, you ought to record that and then start giving that as a service announcement. Yeah, well, when he figured out that second-ranked Kansas was the second-best team in America out of 351, he was like, I think I like Kansas a lot because he likes winning teams. There you but go. they won't win in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> he's a winner, except in the tournament. Yes, hey. <laughs> to answer your original question, we did watch the football games on Sunday. Okay, so so what do you think? Do you, I mean, because, by the way, the, da- the Dallas-Green Bay game, second only to the last year's Super Bowl in ratings. Yeah, take that, Meryl Streep. Killed it. I know. These guys just throwing a ball around. You'll be left mm. watching football and MMA. Well, a lot of people are watching. <laughs> and those aren't the real arts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> those are mixed martial arts. <laughs> Is, it's what the people want, but I will live in denial. <laughs> is it um, is it, uh, Green Bay? How are they going to do? Do you think against Green the Bay Patriots? Is on 
fire. They're they're doing what they did when they won the Super Bowl in two thousand. Was it nine? They came out right? as yeah. a wild card yeah. team. Came out on fire, motivated, hungry. Get hot at the right time. Best quarterback in the game right now. I think Tom Brady's the best quarterback ever. But mm. I think in this postseason, Aaron Rodgers is playing at the highest. Yeah, he's on. A fuego. Packers Patriots Super Bowl would be very compelling. I want anybody but the Patriots. Yeah. Or the Packers. Or the Steelers to win the Super Bowl, and that, <laughs> that leaves the Falcons. That leaves Back the to the Falcons, Hotlanta Falcons. Yes, I'm just I I like Matt Ryan. I like the yeah. Falcons' offense. I think they're exciting. Their receiver Julio Jones is fun to watch. Uh, so, and I I'm about giving new teams an opportunity. Right there, you go. There you go. Share the joy. That's why the Seahawks lost. They'd won it recently. Yeah, they, they wanted to give, to give the Falcons else. a shot. Yeah, get, yeah. That that's why. Yet the Patriots are still being selfish. Yes, those <sighs> selfish pigs. Classic colonials. Beating <laughs> England wasn't enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. That, um, Give rem- me a musket. That, that reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've heard about China, but um, apparently, I've heard of the country. apparently there's, a new, there's a new deity in China. Jimmer Fredette. Jimmer Fredette. Yeah. He's a dominant god in China. They yes. call him that. The loneliness master. The loneliness master, which I guess is a compliment. It sounds right. like a sounds Apparently, like a net, uh, it's, yeah yeah. It's a compliment. He, he's called the lonely god or the lonely loneliness master. Yeah. So he's 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 killing it there. Do you see him being there forever now? No, he'll be there a few years. Really? Yeah. What he's does? A, where does the loneliness god go next? Well. <laughs> He's literally lonely uh, because his wife's living in the U.S. <laughs> and she's with child. Yes. Uh, so that's exciting for Jimmer and Whitney. Um, but yeah, he's tearing it up, getting paid, he's getting he's getting noticed. We we talk about him every game. He he just injured his ankle, so hopefully he can get back soon. But yeah, he's he's doing something enough uh, to get the New York Post to write about him. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, that was amazing. We're happy for him. We we know Jimmer. Yeah. Personally, he's been on the show a few times. I got to know Jimmer really well his senior year. Went to his house a few times and, and did a didn't you guys there in New York. You guys used to leg wrestle, didn't you? Yeah, he's pretty. He has strong calves. Yeah. <laughs> that guy could toss strong you. Bulls. Hey, um, so we've got Jimmer in China, and then yesterday we had uh, who was it? Was it uh, Green that that imitated and made fun of LeBron James? Draymond Green. Oh yeah. Yes. What do you think yep. of that? The saga continues, right? It's a fun yeah. rivalry, right? Yeah, head like, to head. Rivalries enhance sports. Well, what's funny is Kyrie Irving, the Cavaliers point guard, was like, no, this isn't a rivalry. The Celtics and Lakers are a rivalry. Comparably, yes. But right. this is this is a rivalry, though. They've met two years in a row in the playoffs, and there's all this drama. It's a rivalry. It's a rivalry. To a degree, for sure. No, yeah. it's not the same as the Celtics-Lakers. If they meet six years in a Bulls, row He's like, Bulls, Pistons, Celtics-Lakers, they're going at it every time. Those are rivalries. He just was mad because they lost by like 70 points. Yeah, that, that looks bad. It's a regular bad. season NBA game. It just doesn't matter. People are tired. You play 82. It's, it's like one and a half percent of your season. Whoop-de-doo. But it was kind of embarrassing. Oh, temporary embarrassment. The Cavs are the world champs. Who can't handle that? Hey, what's on your show today? Um, Remember how we were talking about managing expectations? Yes. Expectations versus reality for the current state of BYU basketball. Mm. Are things being unfairly heaped upon this team in year one? Or do we need to expect Or are they underwhelming? Are they underwhelming? Yeah. Yeah. Where do they stand in terms of, like, reality versus expectations? Or are they just whelming? 
<laughs> Not over or under, just whelmed. Just whelmed. Yeah. <laughs> Blaine Fowler will join us as well. He'll weigh in on that, plus uh, maybe way too early expectations for BYU football. We'll ask him that. Uh, and then Thomas Schof, he's a freshman All-American offensive lineman. He will uh, join the program. Spencer was actually the one that informed him via Twitter <laughs> that he was such. Oh, really? And yeah. then I, I ran into him at the BYU store. We were both okay. And he told me that, yeah, I didn't know until Spence told me that. So he'll join us in the studio. Spence is breaking the news. I know. Spence is a news sprainer. <laughs> yes. You guys, that's a good show. And we even got into a little sports. I mean, a little uh, Chinese sports, mm-hmm. which is rare. Just get me my musket. The Loneliness Master. Loneliness Master. Okay, kids, have a great show. Knock them dead. Thanks, sir. Keep up the great work. Yeah, boy. What I mean, if all of a sudden you're called the Lonely God, I mean, boy, that's a good gig. He gets to play ball. They revere him. Loneliness in China is seen as a strength. One is the loneliest number that you ever knew. Because we can't play the song. We choose to sing it. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest. Sorry. That's really good. I was going to let you keep going. See how long, see how many of the words you knew. Hey, uh, police, had a, there's a little dispute over snow removal um, that ends in tires being shot out. So with more and more snow on the way for many of you, uh, state police say a dispute between neighbors over snow removal ended with a western New York man shooting out the tires of his neighbor's vehicle while the neighbor was sitting in it. Troopers say they responded late Wednesday night to a report of a neighbor uh, dispute 35 miles southeast of Buffalo. Police say they learned a 55-year-old man got into a verbal and physical confrontation with his neighbor over snow blowing. Troopers say that during the argument, the man got out a shotgun and shot out the tires of his neighbor's vehicle. Nobody was injured in the gunfire. The tires, the tires were. Yeah, Holy no, cow. No person. But, I mean, that's – this is the tension that happens. This is what happens. It's – you start losing your mind in the middle of the winter season. We need more vitamin D from the sun. We're tired of snow blowing. And, you know, a lot can go wrong. You can snow blow right onto your neighbor's car. Then that's going to cause a fight. Then the next thing you know, somebody's blowing your tires out. <sighs> you know what they need is those salt-licking moose and uh, – They could take care of a lot of these problems. I know. If, if you just had a salt-licking moose, just lick the salt off your car. Then everyone could go play with the moose instead of getting mad at each other. It would be like a stress ball. But it's a stress moose. You can go cuddle up. Anyway, it's a new product coming out on the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, our hero of the day. You know we like to end with a hero story. A Pennsylvania man's called a hero after helping and um, after uh, hearing a, an Amber Alert. Listen to this. An SUV pulled up. It matched the description of one of the one person in an Amber Alert that he had read on his phone just minutes before. I happened to see the Green Explorer come speeding to a stop sign, said uh, Daniel DeTurk a security guard. They stopped real quick and then just slowly eased around the corner. Police were after 36-year-old Antonio Velasquez Rupert. 
They said he abducted eight-year-old Ariella Downs in Sharpsville, Pennsylvania, which is 330 miles west of Reading. Um, uh, thinking of his own two daughters, Turk knew what he had to do. He said, I dialed 911 and I took off after him. Velasquez Rupert now also faces homicide charges. The child's mother, Amanda, was found dead, sadly. As for Turk, he eventually lost sight of the SUV but told dispatchers what he had seen. Minutes later, Rupert, uh, later Velasquez Rupert was in custody. He said, I, Turk said, I work in security. We're trained to respond on anything and everything we see, and my training kicked in. So, Daniel Turk, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show, saving a, a young girl's life and really a girl who had already been through enough trauma. So congratulations to you. See what happens, folks, when you just pay attention, when you listen uh, to those Amber Alerts. Pay attention to those. They're not there. They're there for a very important reason. And that's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow to give you more information, more ideas to live longer, love stronger. Until tomorrow, make it a great one, and let's look after each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.